This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Grove of Ashtaroth by John Buchan. It's read for us by Mr. Jim Moon of the Hypnagoria Podcast. It runs one hour, five minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. The Grove of Ashtaroth by John Buchan Des vieux morts est des enchants Dieu Paul Verlaine We were sitting around the campfire some thirty miles north of a place called Tuki when Lawson announced his intention of finding a home. He had spoken little the last day or two, and I guessed he had struck a vein of private reflection. I thought it might be a new mine or irrigation scheme, and I was surprised to find that it was a country house. I don't think I shall go back to England, he said, kicking a sputtering log into place. I don't see why I should. For business purposes, I am far more useful to the firm in South Africa than in Throgmorton Street. I have no relations left except a third cousin, and I have never cared a rush for living in town. That beastly house of mine in Hill Street will fetch what I gave for it. Isaacson cabled me about it the other day, offering for furniture and all. I don't want to go into Parliament, and I hate shooting little birds and tame deer. I am one of those fellows who are born colonial at heart, and I don't see why I shouldn't arrange my life as I please. Besides, for ten years I've been falling in love with this country, and now I am up to the neck. He flung himself back in the camp chair till the canvas creaked, and looked at me below his eyelids. I remember glancing at the lines of him, and thinking what a fine make of man he was. In his untanned field boots, breeches, and grey shirt, he looked like the born wilderness hunter, though less than two months before, he had been driving down to the city every morning in the sombre regimentals of his class. Being a fair man, he was gloriously tanned, and there was a clear line at his shirt collar to mark the limits of his sunburn. I had first known him years ago, when he was a broker's clerk working on half commission. Then he had gone to South Africa, and I soon heard he was partner in a mining house, which was doing wonders with some gold areas in the north. The next step was his return to London as the new millionaire, young, good-looking, wholesome in mind and body, and much sought after by the mothers of marriageable girls. We played polo together and hunted a little in the season, but there were signs that he did not propose to become a conventional English gentleman. He refused to buy a place in the country, though half the homes of England were at his disposal. He was a very busy man, he declared, and had not time to be a squire. Besides, every few months he used to rush out to South Africa. I saw that he was restless, for he was always badgering me to go big-game hunting with him in some remote part of the earth. There was that in his eyes, too, which marked him out from the ordinary blonde type of our countrymen. They were large and brown and mysterious. 
and the light of another race was in their odd depths. To hint such a thing would have meant a breach of his friendship, for Lawson was very proud of his birth. When he first made his fortune, he had gone to the Heralds to discover his family, and these obliging gentlemen had provided a pedigree. It appeared that he was a scion of the house of Lawson, or Loison, an ancient and rather disreputable clan on the Scottish side of the border. He took a shooting in Teviotdale on the strength of it, and used to commit lengthy border ballads to memory. But I had known his father, a financial journalist who never quite succeeded, and I had heard of a grandfather who sold antiques in a back street in Brighton. The latter, I think, had not changed his name, and still frequented the synagogue. The father had been a progressive Christian, and the mother had been a blonde Saxon from the Midlands. In my mind, there was no doubt, as I caught Lawson's heavy-lidded eyes fixed on me. My friend was of a more ancient race than the Lawsons of the border. Where were you thinking of looking for your house? I asked. In Natal, or in the Cape Peninsula, you might get the Fisher's place if you paid a price. The Fisher's place be hanged," he said crossly. "I don't want any stuccoed, overgrown Dutch farm. I might as well be at Roehampton as in the Cape." He got up and walked to the far side of the fire, where a lane ran down Thorn Scrub to a gully of the hills. The moon was silvering the bush of the plains, forty miles off and three thousand feet below us. "I'm going to live somewhere hereabouts," he answered at last. I whistled. "Then you've got to put your hand in your pocket, old man. You'll have to make everything, including a map of the countryside." "I know," he said. "That's where the fun comes." "Hang it all." Why shouldn't I indulge my fancy? I'm uncommonly well off, and I haven't chick or child to leave it to. Supposing I'm a hundred miles up from Railhead, what about it? I'll make a motor road and fix up a telephone. I'll grow most of my supplies and start a colony to provide labour. When you come up and stay with me, you'll get the best food and drink on earth, and sport that will make your mouth water. I'll put. Lock-even trout in these streams. At six hundred feet, you can do anything. We'll have a big pack of hounds too, and we can drive pig in the woods. And if we want big game, there are the Mangway Flats at our feet. I'll tell you, I'll make such a country house as nobody ever dreamed of. A man will come plumb out of stark savagery into lawns and rose gardens. Lawson flung himself into his chair again and smiled dreamily at the fire. But why here of all places? I persisted. I was not feeling very well and did not care for the country. I can't quite explain. I think it's the sort of land I have always been looking for. I always fancied a house on a green plateau in a decent climate, looking down on the tropics. I like heat and colour, you know, but I like hills too, and greenery, and things that bring back Scotland. Give me a cross between Tiviotdale and the Orinoco, and by Gad, I think I've got it here.
I watched my friend curiously, as with bright eyes and eager voice he talked of his new fad. The two races were very clear in him: the one desiring gorgeousness, the other a thirst for the soothing spaces of the north. He began to plan out the house. He would get Adamson to design it, and it was to grow out of the landscape like a stone on the hillside. There would be wide verandas and cool halls, but great fireplaces against the winter time. It would all be very simple and fresh, clean as morning, was his odd phrase. But then another idea supervened, and he talked of bringing the Tintorettes from Hill Street. I want it to be a civilized house, you know, no silly luxury, but the best pictures and china and books. I'll have all of the furniture made after the old plain English models out of native woods. I don't want second-hand sticks in a new country. Yes, by Jove, the Tintorettes are a great idea, and all those Ming pots I bought. I had meant to sell them, but I'll have them out here. He talked for a good hour of what he would do, and his dream grew richer as he talked, till by the time he went to bed. He had sketched something more like a palace than a country house. Lawson was by no means a luxurious man. At present, he was well content with a woolsey valise and shaved cheerfully out of a tin mug. It struck me as odd that a man so simple in his habits should have so sumptuous a taste in bric-a-brac. I told myself as I turned in that the Saxon mother from the Midlands. Had done little to dilute the strong wine of the East. It drizzled the next morning when we inspanned, and I mounted my horse in a bad temper. I had some fever on me, I think, and I hated this lush yet frigid tableland, where all the winds on earth lay in wait for one's marrow. Lawson was, as usual, in great spirits. We were not hunting. But shifting our hunting ground, so all morning we travelled fast to the north along the rim of the uplands. At midday it cleared, and the afternoon was a pageant of pure colour. The wind sank to a low breeze. The sun lit the infinite green spaces and kindled the wet forest to a jewelled coronal. Lawson gaspingly admired it all. As he cantered bareheaded up a bracken-clad slope, God's country, he said twenty times, I found it. Take a piece of Sussex downland, put a stream in every hollow and a patch of wood, and at the edge where the cliffs at home would fall to the sea, put a cloak of forest muffling the scarp and dropping thousands of feet to blue plains. Take the diamond air of the Gonagrat, and the riot of colour that you get by a West Highland lochside in late September. Put flowers everywhere, the things we grow in hothouses, geraniums like sun lamps, and aurums like trumpets. That will give you a notion of the countryside we were in. I began to see that, after all, it was out of the common, and just before sunset. We came over a ridge, and found something better. It was a shallow glen, half a mile wide, down which ran a blue-grey stream in lins like the Spine. 
till at the edge of the plateau it leaped into the dim forest in a snowy cascade. The opposite side ran up in gentle slopes to a rocky knoll from which the eye had a noble prospect of the plains. All down the glen were little copses, half moons of green edging some silvery shore of the burn, or delicate clusters of tall trees nodding on the hill brow. The place so satisfied the eye that, for the sheer wonder of its perfection, we stopped and stared in silence for many minutes. Then, the house, I said, and Lawson replied softly, The house. We rode slowly into the glen in the mulberry gloaming. Our transport wagons were half an hour behind, so we had time to explore. Lawson dismounted and plucked handfuls of flowers from the water meadows. He was singing to himself all the time, an old French catch about Cade Roussel and his Troy Maisons. Who owns it? I asked. My firm as like as not. We have miles of land about here. But whoever the man is, he has got to sell. Here I build my tabernacle, old man. Here and nowhere else. In the very centre of the glen, in a loop of the stream, was one copse which even in that half-light struck me as different from the others. It was of tall, slim, fairy-like trees, the kind of wood the monks painted in old missals. No, I rejected the thought. It was no Christian wood. It was not a copse, but a grove, one such as Artemis may have flitted through in the moonlight. It was small, forty or fifty yards in diameter, and there was a dark something at the heart of it, which, for a second, I thought was a house. We turned between the slender trees, and, was it fancy, an odd tremor went through me. I felt as if I were penetrating the tenemos of some strange and lovely divinity the goddess of this pleasant vale. There was a spell in the air, it seemed, and an odd dead silence. Suddenly my horse started at a flutter of light wings. A flock of doves rose from the branches, and I saw the burnished green of their plumes against the opal sky. Lawson did not seem to notice them. I saw his keen eyes staring at the centre of the grove, and what stood there. It was a little conical tower, ancient and lichened, but as far as I could judge, quite flawless. You know the famous conical temple at Zimbabwe, of which prints are in every guidebook? This was of the same type, but a thousandfold more perfect. It stood about thirty feet high, of solid masonry, without door or window or cranny, as shapely as when it first came from the hands of the old builders. Again I had the sense of breaking in on a sanctuary. What right had I, a common vulgar modern, to be looking at this fair thing, among these delicate trees, which some white goddess had once taken for her shrine? Lawson broke in on my absorption. Let's get out of this, he said hoarsely and he took my horse's bridle. He had left his own beast at the edge, 
and led him back into the open. I noticed that his eyes were always turning back, and that his hand trembled. That settles it, I said after supper. What do you want with your medieval Venetians and your Chinese pots now? You will have the finest antique in the world in your garden, a temple as old as time, and in a land which they say has no history. You had the right inspiration this time. I think I have said that Lawson had hungry eyes. In his enthusiasm, they used to glow and brighten, but now, as he sat looking down at the olive shades of the glen, they seemed ravenous in their fire. He had hardly spoken a word since we left the wood. Where can I read about these things? He asked, and I gave him the names of books. Then, an hour later. He asked me who were the builders. I told him what little I knew about Phoenician and Sabean wanderings, and the ritual of Sidon and Tyre. He repeated some names to himself and went soon to bed. As I turned in, I had one last look over the glen, which lay ivory and black in the moon. I seemed to hear a faint echo of wings. And to see over the little grove a cloud of light visitants, the doves of Ashtaroth have come back. I said to myself, "It is a good omen; they accept the new tenant." But as I fell asleep, I had a sudden thought that I was saying something rather terrible. Two. Three years later, pretty much to the day. I came back to see what Lawson had made of his hobby. He had bidden me often to Welgevoden, as he chose to call it, though I do not know why he should have fixed a Dutch name to a countryside where Boa never trod. At the last, there had been some confusion about dates, and I wired the time of my arrival and set off without answer. A motor met me at the queer little wayside station of Tenik, and after many miles on a doubtful highway. I came to the gates of the park, on a road on which it was a delight to move. Three years had wrought little difference in the landscape. Lawson had done some planting, conifers and flowering shrubs and such like, but wisely he had resolved that nature had, for the most part, forestalled him. All the same, he must have spent a mint of money. The drive could not have been beaten in England. And the fringes of mown turf on either hand had been pared out of the lush meadows. When we came over the edge of the hill and looked down on the secret glen, I could not repress a cry of pleasure. The house stood on the farther ridge, the viewpoint of the whole neighbourhood, and its dark timbers and white rough cast walls melted into the hillside as if it had been there since the beginning of things. The vale below was ordered in lawns and gardens. A blue lake received the rapids of the stream, and its banks were a maze of green shades and glorious masses of blossom. I noticed too that the little grove we had explored on our first visit stood alone in a big stretch of lawn, so that its perfection might be clearly seen. Lawson had excellent taste. Oh. He had had the best advice. 
The butler told me that his master was expected home shortly, and took me into the library for tea. Lawson had left his tintorettes and ming pots at home after all. It was a long, low room, panelled in teak halfway up the walls, and the shelves had a multitude of fine bindings. There were good rugs on the parquet floor, but no ornaments anywhere, save three. On the carved mantelpiece, stood two of the old soapstone birds which they used to find at Zimbabwe, and between them, on an ebony stand, a half-moon of alabaster, curiously carved with zodiacal figures. My host had altered his scheme of furnishing, but I approved of the change. He came in about half-past six, after I had consumed two cigars and all but fallen asleep. Three years make a difference in most men, but I was not prepared for the change in Lawson. For one thing, he had grown fat. In place of the lean young man I had known, I saw a heavy, flaccid being who shuffled in his gait and seemed tired and listless. His sunburn had gone, and his face was as pasty as a city clerk's. He had been walking and wore shapeless flannel clothes which hung loose even on his enlarged figure. And the worst of it was that he did not seem over-pleased to see me. He murmured something about my journey, and then flung himself into an armchair and looked out of the window. I asked him if he had been ill. Ill? No, he said crossly. Nothing of the kind. I'm perfectly well. You don't look as fit as this place should make you. What do you do with yourself? Is the shooting as good as you hoped? He did not answer, but I thought I heard him muttering something like, Shooting be damned. Then I tried the subject of the house. I praised it extravagantly, but with conviction. There can be no place like it in the world, I said. He turned his eyes on me at last, and I saw that they were as deep and restless as ever. With his pallid face, they made him look curiously Semitic. I had been right in my view about his ancestry. Yes, he said slowly, there's no place like it in the world. Then he pulled himself to his feet. I'm going to change, he said. Dinner is at eight. Ring for Travers. He'll show you your room. I dressed in a noble bedroom, with an outlook over the garden vale and the escarpment to the far line of the plains, now blue and saffron in the sunset. I dressed in an ill temper, for I was seriously offended with Lawson, and also seriously alarmed. He was either very unwell or going out of his mind. I ransacked my memory for rumours, but found none. I had heard nothing of him, except that he had been extraordinarily successful in his speculations, and that from his hilltop he directed his firm's operations with uncommon skill. If Lawson were sick or mad, nobody knew of it. Dinner was a tiring ceremony. Lawson, who used to be rather particular in his dress, appeared in a kind of smoking suit and a flannel collar. He spoke scarcely a word to me and cursed the servants with a brutality that left me aghast. 
The wretched footman, in his nervousness, spilt some sauce over his sleeve. Lawson dashed the dish from his hand and volleyed abuse with a sort of epileptic fury. Also he, who had been the most abstemious of men, swallowed disgusting quantities of champagne and old brandy. He had given up smoking, and half an hour after we left the dining room, he announced his intent of going to bed. I watched him as he waddled upstairs with a feeling of angry bewilderment. Then I went to the library and lit a pipe. I would leave first thing in the morning. On that I was determined. But as I sat gazing at the moon of alabaster and the soapstone birds, my anger evaporated, and concern took its place. I remembered what a fine fellow Lawson had been. What good times we had had together! I remembered especially that evening when we found this valley and given rein to our fancies. What horrid alchemy in the place had turned a gentleman into a brute! I thought of drink and drugs and madness and insomnia, but I could fit none of them into my conception of my friend. I did not consciously rescind my resolve to depart. But I had a notion I would not act on it. The sleepy butler met me as I went to bed. Mr. Lawson's room is at the end of your corridor, sir, he said. You don't sleep well over, so you may hear him stirring in the night. At what hour would you like breakfast, sir? Mr. Lawson mostly has his in bed. My room opened from the great corridor, which ran the full length of the front of the house. So far as I could make out, Lawson was three rooms off, a vacant bedroom and his servant's room being between us. I felt tired and cross, and tumbled into bed as fast as possible. Usually I sleep well, but now I was soon conscious that my drowsiness was wearing off, and that I was in for a restless night. I got up and laved my face, turned the pillows, thought of sheep coming over a hill. And clouds crossing the sky, but none of the old devices were of any use. After about half an hour of make-believe, I surrendered myself to facts, and lying on my back, stared up at the white ceiling and the patches of moonshine on the walls. It certainly was an amazing night. I got up, put on a dressing gown, and drew a chair to the window. The moon was almost at its full. And the whole plateau swam in a radiance of ivory and silver. The banks of the stream were black, but the lake had a great belt of light athwart it, which made it seem like a horizon, and the rim of land beyond like a contorted cloud. Far to the right, I saw the delicate outlines of the little wood which I had come to think of as the Grove of Ashtaroth. I listened. There was not a sound in the air. The land seemed to sleep peacefully beneath the moon, and yet I had a sense that the peace was an illusion. The place was feverishly restless. I could have given no reason for my impression, but there it was. Something was stirring in the wide moonlit landscape, under its deep mask of silence. I felt. As I had on the evening three years ago, when I had ridden into the grove, 
I did not think that the influence, whatever it was, was maleficent. I only knew that it was very strange and kept me wakeful. By and by, I bethought me of a book. There was no lamp in the corridor save the moon, but the whole house was bright as I slipped down the great staircase and across the hall to the library. I switched on the lights and then switched them off. They seemed a profanation, and I did not need them. I found a French novel, but the place held me, and I stayed. I sat down in an armchair before the fireplace and the stone birds. Very odd, those gawky things, like prehistoric great orcs, looked in the moonlight. I remember that the alabaster moon shimmered like translucent pearl. And I fell to wondering about its history. Had the old Sabasans used such a jewel in their rites in the grove of Ashtaroth? Then I heard footsteps pass the window. A great house like this would have a watchman, but those quick shuffling footsteps were surely not the dull plod of a servant. They passed on to the grass and died away. I began to think of getting back to my room. In the corridor, I noticed that Lawson's door was ajar, and that a light had been left burning. I had the unpardonable curiosity to peep in. The room was empty, and the bed had not been slept in. Now I knew whose were the footsteps outside the library window. I lit a reading lamp and tried to interest myself in. Cruel enigma, but my wits were restless, and I could not keep my eyes on the page. I flung the book aside and sat down again by the window. The feeling came over me that I was sitting in a box at some play. The glen was a huge stage, and at any moment the players might appear on it. My attention was strung as high as if I had been waiting for the advent of some world-famous actress. But nothing came; only the shadows shifted and lengthened as the moon moved across the sky. Then, quite suddenly, the restlessness left me, and at the same moment the silence was broken by the crow of a cock and the rustling of trees in a light wind. I felt very sleepy, and was turning to bed when again I heard footsteps without. From the window, I could see a figure moving across the garden towards the house. It was Lawson, got up in some sort of towel dressing gown that one wears on board ship. He was walking slowly and painfully, as if very weary. I did not see his face, but the man's whole air was that of extreme fatigue and dejection. I tumbled into bed and. Slept profoundly till long after daylight. Three. The man who valeted me was Lawson's own servant. As he was laying out my clothes, I asked after the health of his master, and was told he had slept ill and would not rise till late. Then the man, an anxious-faced Englishman, gave me some information on his own account. Mister Lawson was having one of his bad turns. It would pass away in a day or two, but till it was gone, he was fit for nothing. He advised me to see Mister Jobson, 
the factor, who would look after my entertainment in his master's absence. Jobson arrived before luncheon, and the sight of him was the first satisfactory thing about Welgevoden. He was a big gruff Scot from Roxburghshire, engaged no doubt by Lawson as a duty to his border ancestry. He had short grizzled whiskers, a weather-worn face, and a shrewd calm blue eye. I knew now why the place was in such perfect order. We began with sport, and Jobson explained what I could have in the way of fishing and shooting. His exposition was brief and business-like, and all the while I could see his eye searching me. It was clear he had much to say on other matters than sport. I told him I had come here with Lawson three years before, when he chose the site. Jobson continued to regard me curiously. I've heard tell of ye from Mr. Lawson. You're an old friend of his, I understand. The oldest, I said, and I am sorry to find the place does not agree with him. Why it doesn't, I cannot imagine. For you look fit enough. Has he been seedy for long? It comes and goes, said Mr. Jobson. Maybe once a month he has a bad turn. But on the whole it agrees with him very badly. He's no the man he was when I first came here. Jobson was looking at me very seriously and frankly. I risked a question. What do you suppose is the matter? He did not reply at once, but leaned forward and tapped my knee. I think it's something the doctors can cure. Look at me, sir. I've always been counted a sensible man. But if I told you what was in my head, you would think me daft. But I have one word for you. By till tonight is past, then spare your question. Maybe you and me will be agreed. The factor rose to go. As he left the room, he flung me back a remark over his shoulder. Read the eleventh chapter of the first book of Kings. After luncheon I went for a walk. First I mounted to the crown of the hill, and feasted my eyes on the unequalled loveliness of the view. I saw the far hills in Portuguese territory, a hundred miles away, lifting up thin blue fingers into the sky. The wind blew light and fresh, and the place was fragrant with a thousand delicate scents. Then I descended to the vale, and followed the stream up through the garden. Poncietas and oleanders were blazing in coverts, and there was a paradise of tinted water-lilies in the slacker reaches. I saw good trout rise on the fly, but I did not think about fishing. I was searching my memory for a recollection which would not come. By and by I found myself beyond the garden where the lawns ran to the fringe of Ashtaroth's grove. It was like something I remembered in an old Italian picture. Only, as my memory drew it, it should have been peopled with strange figures, nymphs dancing on the sward, and a prick-eared fawn peeping from the covert. In the warm afternoon sunlight it stood ineffably gracious and beautiful, tantalising with a sense of some deep hidden loveliness. Very reverently I walked between the slim trees 
to where the little conical tower stood half in the sun and half in shadow. Then I noticed something new. Round the tower ran a narrow path, worn in the grass by human feet. There had been no such path on my first visit, for I remember the grass growing tall to the edge of the stone. Had the Kaffirs made a shrine of it? Or were there other, stranger votaries? When I returned to the house, I found Travers with a message for me. Mr. Lawson was still in bed, but he would like me to go to him. I found my friend sitting up and drinking strong tea. A bad thing, I should have thought, for a man in his condition. I remember that I looked about the room for some sign of the pernicious habit which I believed him a victim. But the place was fresh and clean, with the windows wide open, and though I could not have given my reasons, I was convinced that drugs or drink had nothing to do with the sickness. He received me more civilly, but I was shocked by his looks. There were great bags below his eyes, and his skin had the wrinkled puffy appearance of a man in dropsy. His voice, too, was reedy and thin. Only his great eyes burned with some feverish life. I am a shocking bad host, he said, but I'm going to be still more inhospitable. I want you to go away. I hate anybody here when I'm off colour. Nonsense, I said. You want looking after. I want to know about this sickness. Have you had a doctor? He smiled wearily. Doctors are no earthly use to me. There's nothing much the matter, I can tell you. I'll be all right in a day or two, and then you can come back. I want you to go off with Jobson and, and hunt in the plains till the end of the week. It'll be better fun for you, and I'll feel less guilty. Of course I pooh-poohed the idea, and Lawson got angry. Damn it, man, he cried. Why do you force yourself on me when I don't want you? I tell you your presence here makes me worse. In a week I'll be right as the mail, and then I'll be thankful for you. But get away now. Get away, I tell you. I saw he was fretting himself into a passion. All right, I said soothingly. Jobson and I will go off hunting. But I am horribly anxious about you, old man. He lay back on his pillows. You needn't trouble. I only want a little rest. Jobson will make all the arrangements, and Travers will get you anything you want. Goodbye. I saw it was useless to stay any longer, so I left the room. Outside, I found the anxious-faced servant. Now look here, I said. Mr. Lawson thinks I ought to go, but I mean to stay. Tell him I'm gone if he asks you, and for heaven's sake, keep him in bed. The man promised, and I thought I saw some relief in his face. I went to the library, and on the way remembered Jobson's remark about First Kings. With some searching I found a Bible, and turned up the passage. It was a long screed about the misdeeds of Solomon, and I read it through without enlightenment. I began to reread it and a word suddenly caught my attention. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians. That was all, but it was like a key to a cipher. Instantly there flashed over my mind all that I had heard or read of that strange ritual 
which seduced Israel to sin. I saw a sunburnt land, and a people vowed to the stern service of Jehovah. But I saw, too, eyes turning from the austere sacrifice to lonely hilltop groves and towers and images where dwelt some subtle and evil mystery. I saw the fierce prophets scourging the votaries with rods and a nation penitent before the Lord, but always the backsliding again and the hankering after forbidden joys. Ashtaroth was the old goddess of the East. Was it not possible that in all Semitic blood there remained, transmitted through the dim generations, some craving for her spell? I thought of the grandfather in the back street at Brighton, and of those burning eyes upstairs. As I sat and mused, my glance fell on the inscrutable stone birds. They knew those old secrets of joy and terror, and that moon of alabaster, some dark priest had worn it on his forehead when he worshipped, like Ahab, all the host of heaven. And then I honestly began to be afraid. I, a prosaic modern Christian gentleman, a half-believer in casual faiths, was in the presence of some hoary mystery of sin far older than creeds or Christendom. There was fear in my heart, a kind of uneasy disgust, and, above all, a nervous, eerie disquiet. Now I wanted to go away, and yet I was ashamed of the cowardly thought. I pictured Ashtaroth's grove with sheer horror. What tragedy was in the air? What secret awaited twilight? For the night was coming, the night of the full moon, the season of ecstasy and sacrifice. I don't know how I got through that evening. I was disinclined for dinner, so I had a cutlet in the library and sat smoking till my tongue ached. But as the hours passed, a more manly resolution grew up in my mind. I owed it to old friendship to stand by Lawson in this extremity. I could not interfere. God knows his reason seemed already rocking, but I could be at hand in case my chance came. I determined not to undress, but to watch through the night. I had a bath and changed into some light flannels and slippers. Then I took up my position in a corner of the library, close to the window, so that I could not fail to hear Lawson's footsteps if he passed. Fortunately, I left the lights unlit, for as I waited I grew drowsy and fell asleep. When I woke, the moon had risen, and I knew from the feel in the air that the hour was late. I sat very still, straining my ears and as I listened I caught the sound of steps. They were crossing the hall stealthily and nearing the library door. I huddled into my corner as Lawson entered. He wore the same towel dressing gown, and he moved swiftly and silently, as if in a trance. I watched him take the alabaster moon from the mantelpiece and drop it in his pocket. A glimpse of white skin showed that the gown was his only clothing. And then he moved past me to the window, opened it, and went out. 
Without any conscious purpose, I rose and followed, kicking off my slippers that I might go quietly. He was running, running fast, across the lawns in the direction of the grove, an odd, shapeless antic in the moonlight. I stopped, for there was no cover, and I feared for his reason if he saw me. When I looked again, he had disappeared among the trees. I saw nothing for it but to crawl, so on my belly I wormed my way over the dripping sward. There was a ridiculous suggestion of deer-stalking about the game, which tickled me and dispelled my uneasiness. Almost I persuaded myself I was tracking an ordinary sleepwalker. The lawns were broader than I imagined, and it seemed an age before I reached the edge of the grove. The world was so still that I appeared to be making a most ghastly amount of noise. I remember that once I heard a rustling in the air, and looked up to see the green doves circling about the treetops. There was no sign of Lawson. On the edge of the grove, I think that all my assurance vanished. I could see between the trunks to the little tower, but it was quiet as the grave, save for the wings above. Once more they came over me, the unbearable sense of anticipation I had felt the night before. My nerves tingled with mingled expectation and dread. I did not think that any harm would come to me, for the powers of the air seemed not malignant. But I knew them for powers, and felt awed and abased. I was in the presence of the host of heaven, and I was no stern Israelitish prophet to prevail against them. I must have lain for hours waiting in that spectral place. My eyes riveted on the tower and its golden cap of moonshine. I remember that my head felt void and light, as if my spirit were becoming disembodied and leaving its drew-drenched sheath far below. But the most curious sensation was of something drawing me to the tower, something mild and kindly and rather feeble, for there was some other stronger force keeping me back. I yearned to move nearer, but I could not drag my limbs an inch. There was a spell somewhere which I could not break. I do not think I was in any way frightened now. The starry influence was playing tricks with me, but my mind was half asleep. Only I never took my eyes from the little tower. I think I could not, if I had wanted to. Then suddenly from the shadows came Lawson. He was stark naked, and he wore, bound across his brow, the half-moon of alabaster. He had something too in his hand, something which glittered. He ran round the tower, crooning to himself, and flinging wild arms to the skies. Sometimes the crooning changed to a shrill cry of passion, such as a maenad may have uttered in the train of Bacchus. I could make out no words, but the sound told its own tale. He was absorbed in some infernal ecstasy, and as he ran, he drew his right hand across his breast and arms, and I saw it held a knife. I grew sick with disgust. Not terror, 
but honest physical loathing. Lawson, gashing his fat body, affected me with an overpowering repugnance. I wanted to go forward and stop him, and I wanted, too, to be a hundred miles away. And the result was that I stayed still. I believe my own will held me there, but I doubt if in any case I could have moved my legs. The dance grew swifter and fiercer. I saw the blood dripping from Lawson's body, and his face ghastly white above his scarred breast. And then suddenly the horror left me. My head swam, and for one second, one brief second, I peered into a new world. A strange passion surged up in my heart. I seemed to see the earth peopled with forms not human, scarcely divine, but more desirable than man or god. The calm face of nature broke up for me into wrinkles of wild knowledge. I saw the things which brush against the soul in dreams, and found them lovely. There seemed no cruelty in the knife or the blood. It was the delicate mystery of worship, as wholesome as the morning song of birds. I do not know how the Semites found Ashtaroth's ritual, but to them it may well have been more rapt and passionate than it seemed to me. For I saw in it only the sweet simplicity of nature, and all riddles of lust and terror soothed away as a child's nightmares are calmed by a mother. I found my legs able to move, and I think I took two steps through the dusk towards the tower. And then it all ended. A cock crew, and the homely noises of earth were renewed. While I stood dazed and shivering, Lawson plunged through the grove towards me. The impetus carried him to the edge, but he fell fainting just outside the shade. My wits and common sense came back to me with my bodily strength. I got my friend on my back and staggered with him towards the house. I was afraid in real earnest now, and what frightened me most was the thought that I had not been afraid sooner. I had come very near the abomination of the Zidonians. At the door I found the scared valet waiting. He had apparently done this sort of thing before. Your master has been sleepwalking, and has had a fall, I said. We must get him to bed at once. We bathed his wounds as he lay in a deep stupor, and I dressed them as well as I could. The only danger lay in his utter exhaustion, for happily the gashes were not serious, and no artery had been touched. Sleep and rest would make him well, for he had the constitution of a strong man. I was leaving the room when he opened his eyes and spoke. He did not recognize me, but I noticed that his face had lost its strangeness, and was once more that of the friend I had known. Then I suddenly bethought me of an old hunting remedy which he and I always carried on our expeditions. It is a pill made up from an ancient Portuguese prescription. One is an excellent specific for fever. Two are invaluable if you are lost in the bush, for they send a man for many hours into a deep sleep, 
which prevents suffering and madness till help comes. 3. Give a painless death. I went to my room and found the little box in my jewel case. Lawson swallowed two and turned wearily on his side. I bade the man let him sleep till he woke, and went off in search of food. 4. I had business on hand which would not wait. By seven, Jobson, who had been sent for, was waiting for me in the library. I knew by his grim face that here I had a very good substitute for a prophet of the Lord. You are right, I said. I have read the eleventh chapter of First Kings, and I have spent such a night as I pray God I shall never spend again. I thought that you would, he replied. I've had the same experience myself. The grove, I said. I the wood, was the answer in broad Scots. I wanted to see how much he understood. Mr. Lawson's family is from the Scottish border. I, I understand they come off Brothwick Waterside, he replied. But I saw by his eyes that he knew what I meant. Mr. Lawson is my oldest friend, I went on and I am going to take measures to cure him. For what I am going to do, I take sole responsibility. I will make that plain to your master. But if I am to succeed, I want your help. Will you give it me? It sounds like madness, and you are a sensible man and may like to keep out of it. I leave it to your discretion. Jobson looked me straight in the face. Have no fear for me, he said. There is an unholy thing in that place, and if I have strength in me, I will destroy it. He has been a good master to me, and for by, I am a believing Christian. So say on, sir. There was no mistaking the air. I had found my tishbite. I want men, I said, as many as we can get. Jobson mused. The Kaffirs will no gan near the place. But there's some thirty white men on the tobacco farm. They'll do you will if you give them an indemnity in writing. Good, said I. Then we will take our instructions from the only authority which meets the case. We will follow the example of King Josiah. I turned up the third chapter of Second Kings and read, And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had builded for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Zidomans, did the king defile. And he brazed in pieces the images, and cut down the groves, and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made both that altar and the high place he brake down, and burned the high place, and stamped it small to powder, and burned the grove. Jobson moved. It'll need dynamite, but I've got plenty on down at the workshops. I'll be off to collect the lads. Before nine, the men had assembled at Jobson's house. They were a hardy lot of young farmers from home, who took their instructions docilely from the masterful factor. On my orders, they had brought their shotguns. We armed them with spades and woodsmen's axes, 
and one man wheeled some coils of rope in a handcart. In the clear, windless air of the morning, the grove, set amid its lawns, looked too innocent and exquisite for evil. I had a pang of regret that a thing so fair should suffer. If I had come alone, I think I might have repented. But the men were there, and the grim-faced Jobson was waiting for orders. I placed the guns and set the beaters to the far side. I told them that every dove must be shot. It was only a small flock, and we killed fifteen at the first drive. The poor birds flew over the glen to another spinney, but we brought them back over the guns and seven fell. Four more were got in the trees, and the last I killed myself with a long shot. In half an hour there was a pile of little green bodies on the sward. Then we went to work to cut down the trees. The slim stems were an easy task to a good woodman, and one after another they toppled to the ground. And meantime, as I watched, I became conscious of a strange emotion. It was as if someone were pleading with me, a gentle voice, not threatening, but pleading, something too fine for the sensual ear, but touching inner chords of the spirit. So tenuous it was and distant that I could think of no personality behind it. Rather, it was the viewless, bodiless grace of this delectable veil, some old exquisite divinity of the groves. There was the heart of all sorrow in it, and the soul of all loveliness. It seemed a woman's voice, some lost lady who had brought nothing but goodness unrepaid to the world. And what the voice told me was this, that I was destroying her last shelter. That was the pathos of it. The voice was homeless. As the axes flashed in the sunlight and the wood grew thin, that gentle spirit was pleading with me for mercy and a brief respite. It seemed to be telling of a world for centuries grown coarse and pitiless, of long sad wanderings, of hardly one shelter, and a peace which was the little all she sought from men. There was nothing terrible about it, no thought of wrongdoing. The spell which to Semitic blood held the mystery of evil was to me of a different race, only delicate and rare and beautiful. Jobson and the rest did not feel it. I, with my finer senses, caught nothing but the hopeless sadness of it. That which stirred the passion in Lawson was only wringing my heart. It was almost too pitiful to bear. As the trees crashed down and the men wiped the sweat from their brows, I seemed to myself like the murderer of fair women and innocent children. I remember the tears were running over my cheeks. More than once I opened my mouth to countermand the work, but the face of Jobson, that grim tishbite, held me back. I knew now what gave the prophets of the Lord their mastery, and I knew also why the people sometimes stoned them. The last tree fell, and the little tower looked like a ravished shrine, stripped of all defences against the world. I heard Jobson's voice speaking. 
We better blast that stained thing now. We'll trench on four sides and lay the dynamite. You're no looking well, sir. You'd better go and sit down on the brayface. I went up the hillside and lay down. Below me, in the waste of shorn trunks, men were running about, and I saw the mining begin. It all seemed like an aimless dream in which I had no part. The voice of that homeless goddess was still pleading. It was the innocence of it that tortured me. Even so must a merciful inquisitor have suffered from the plea of some fair girl with the aureole of death on her hair. I knew I was killing rare and unrecoverable beauty. As I sat dazed and heartsick, the whole loveliness of nature seemed to plead for its divinity. The sun in the heavens, the mellow lines of upland, the blue mystery of the far plains, all were part of that soft voice. I felt bitter scorn for myself. I was guilty of blood. Nay, I was guilty of the sin against light which knows no forgiveness. I was murdering innocent gentleness, and there would be no peace on earth for me. Yet I sat helpless. The power of a sterner will constrained me, and all the while the voice was growing fainter and dying away into unutterable sorrow. Suddenly a great flame sprang to heaven, and a pall of smoke. I heard men crying out, and fragments of stone fell about the ruins of the grove. When the air cleared, the little tower had gone out of sight. The voice had ceased, and there seemed to me to be a bereaved silence in the world. The shock moved me to my feet, and I ran down the slope to where Jobson stood, rubbing his eyes. That's done the job. Now we moan get up the tree roots. We've got no time to hawk. We'll just blast the feck of them. The work of destruction went on, but I was coming back to my senses. I forced myself to be practical and reasonable. I thought of the night's experience and Lawson's haggard eyes, and I screwed myself into a determination to see the thing through. I had done the deed. It was my business to make it complete. A text in Jeremiah came into my head. Their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. I would see to it that this grove was utterly forgotten. We blasted the tree roots, and yoking oxen, dragged the debris into a great heap. Then the men set to work with their spades and roughly leveled the ground. I was getting back to my old self, and Jobson's spirit was becoming mine. There's one more thing, I told him. Get ready a couple of ploughs. We will improve upon King Josiah. My brain was a medley of scripture precedents, and I was determined that no safeguard should be wanting. We yoked the oxen again and drove the ploughs over the site of the grove. It was rough ploughing, for the place was thick with bits of stone from the tower, but the slow Africander oxen plodded on, and some time in the afternoon the work was finished. Then I sent down to the farm for bags of rock salt, such as they use for cattle. Jobson and I took a sack apiece and walked up and down the furrows, sowing them with salt.
The last act was to set fire to the pile of tree trunks. They burned well, and on top we flung the bodies of the green doves. The birds of Ashtaroth had an honourable pyre. Then I dismissed the much perplexed men, and gravely shook hands with Jobson. Black with dust and smoke, I went back to the house, where I bade Travers pack my bags and order the motor. I found Lawson's servant, and heard from him that his master was sleeping peacefully. I gave him some directions, and then went to wash and change. Before I left, I wrote a line to Lawson. I began by transcribing the verses from the 23rd chapter of Second Kings. I told him what I had done, and my reason. I take the whole responsibility upon myself, I wrote. No man in the place had anything to do with it but me. I acted as I did, for the sake of our old friendship, and you will believe it was no easy task for me. I hope you will understand. Whenever you are able to see me, send me word, and I will come back and settle with you. But I think you will realize that I have saved your soul. The afternoon was merging into twilight as I left the house on the road to Turkey. The great fire, where the grove had been, was still blazing fiercely, and the smoke made a cloud over the upper glen, and filled all the air with a soft violet haze. I knew I had done well for my friend, and that he would come to his senses and be grateful. But as the car reached the ridge, I looked back to the veil I had outraged. The moon was rising and silvering the smoke, and through the gaps I could see the tongues of fire. Somehow, I know not why, the lake, the stream, the garden coverts, and even the green slopes of hill wore an air of loneliness and desecration. And then my heartache returned, and I knew that I had driven something lovely and adorable from its last refuge on earth. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. And hi, I'm Paul Weimer. And we're going to talk about The Grove of Ashtaroth, a uh, novelette by John Buchan, first published in 1910. And uh, I, I think I told Mr. Jim Moon that I was obsessed with this story. Um, obsessed? Why? I don't know. It just every every year I kept coming back to it and sort of dashing myself against it. And there's something about it that, I, I don't know, I really like it. And also, it's kind of gross, too, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like, there's a lot of racism in it, and it's sort of fundamentally based on racism. But it's not that icky of a kind of racism. It's kind of just like, uh, you know, it's not Nazi, because he's, he's friends with the guy. And he's just too embarrassed to call him out on his Jewishness. <laughs> or something like that. Well, it's, it's part of a lot of... It's this, this period of 20th century literature is very troublesome. I mean, Lovecraft has, has got it in the neck um, in recent years. Largely because of things he wrote in private letters, not what's in his mm. stories. And people apply what he wrote in his letters to his stories and start putting everything through a racist filter. But horror fiction is about the fear of the other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and... 
you know, decay and generation are, are common tropes as well. Uh, and you can read them as racist, but when you start doing that, you can read pretty much all horror as racist if you're going <laughs> to make that parallel. I mean, here, kind of, I think you've got, you know, Buchan has the same, he's been exposed to the same intellectual climate that Lovecraft was. And whether we like it or not, an awful lot of people who were very, who would consider them liberal at the time, thoroughly bought into the scientific theory of different races and racial blood and all this kind of stuff. Now we all go, oh, no, bloody hell. That goes to a bad place. But, you know, yeah. we, we've had the, the rest of the 20th century to, um, to teach us that lesson and that they hadn't. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, I found this, uh, I mean, I, I narrated this. I'm always... I do have a, a sensitivity alarm bell because, you know, I, I don't want to read a story that will upset people for the wrong reasons. If it scares them, brilliant. But I don't, I don't want to offend them, you know? Uh, and this was kind of like, oh boy, where's he going with this? And it's kind of, it's just on the cusp of stepping over a line and saying something pleasant. But for me, it never quite crosses it. But I can no, understand I why people no. pick up going, this, this is a bit, uh, there's, there's an off note in there for a, for a modern reader, shall we say. It's not as bad as in, say, if you read Sax Roma, you go, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you know, doing all the horrible yellow peril stuff. Yeah, well, uh, what I like about, about uh, Sax Roma is that when you read his stuff, you, you realize that Fu Manchu is the hero. Yes. And that these racist <laughs> English assholes are always trying to, like, dominate Asia. <laughs> and all he's trying to do is, listen, gentlemen. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that in that way you can actually read it as a very positive story as long as you remember that Fu Manchu is the hero. Mm. In this case, I think it's very uh, on the line. But Paul, is this the first time you had read it? I'd heard of this story, and when I was listening to that uh, that escape uh, audio drama. audio drama, it's like I think I've heard this before, or I know I've heard I had heard of the audio drama before from, of all things, from a Harlan Ellison essay way back. He was, in one, in one of his, like, old uh, essay collections, he was talking about the escape radio dramas, and I think he mentioned this story. So the Grove Astros sounded familiar when they first said, oh, why don't you read and listen to this? Like, that sounds familiar, but I don't remember where I where I picked it up. And then there's the details with it. It's like, this is vaguely familiar. I don't remember where I first came contact with I know I came in contact before listening to this for the first time somewhere because the details were just familiar enough that I, I absorbed them from somewhere but I'm not quite sure where and to uh, key on what you two were saying before yeah this th this doesn't quite go into like say Lovecraft Red Hook territory for example but right. it I mean it's it's well how can What's how can I put this uh, gently? It's uncomfortably of its time, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, I I think of it like what's so interesting is that it's it is it's about race in a way that uh, like a lot of Lovecraft stuff is about race as well, but it isn't racist in the sense that like. Um, uh, you know, we the only solution to this is to make sure that nobody uh, ever has any Jewish blood in them, and therefore we have to have a pogrom or anything like that. What it 
where the line is in the story where it gets sort of the most uncomfortable is where he describes his friend's changing disposition. And there's a line in there about the uh, Saxon blood of the mother of the Midlands uh, couldn't hold up to the uh, strong wine of the East. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something like that. And it's like, that is that is the, the logic that gives you, no matter how much black you have in you, you're black. You know, everybody, and the thing is, that logic is still in force, right? President Obama is black. Everybody knows that. His mom's white. He's black. How is that the case? Well, he identifies as black. <laughs> but, you know, uh, that's not, like, there's some fundamental truth behind that point, is that if you buy into this logic, um, you can even buy into it yourself, right? So uh, a lot of Americans like to say, you know, I'm one one sixty fourth Cherokee <laughs> or whatever the line is, right? Because that makes them more American. And underneath this story is that fundamental assumption that race does influence your your life in some way. And uh, of course, race isn't a real thing. It's not science, but it is a cultural thing. Mm. And uh, what I like about this story, other than you know, it's amazingly well written and very interesting and all that stuff, is that it is a little time capsule showing you exactly what people were like, or at least what they were thinking was like in um, the early, uh, very early 20th century, late 19th century. Well, I think what's interesting about this story is the fact that um, this ambiguity brought into it, particularly over the end and the narrator's own experience of the force that inhabits the grove. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think kind of with the character's background, I think it's an interesting thought experiment. Say, if we flip this story and mm-hmm. had it him setting up a country house in the Highlands of Scotland, discovering a Druidic grove, and right. it was his border Scottish blood being called to, we probably wouldn't be going down the sort of discussion routes we'd have. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, but where, you know, where it gets done so strange is, is that, you know, our narrator, he finds the, the force in the grove of Ashtoreth to be this lovely, peaceful force of nature. And yet in his friend, it's turned him into something of a monster and uh, a, flab- well, a, fl- a flaccid being and a brute right. is the exact words. And he's, uh, right. It's dehumanized him. Yes, yes. Um, and he, he does reference that kind of it was something of his particular blood going back to the ancients israelites blasphemy from when they turned away from the lord that for him it expresses itself in a in a violent way rather than this sort of natural peace he finds mm-hmm. um and yet at the same time he, he saves his friend and yet also knows he's done something absolutely terrible and and actually got rid of a benevolent supernatural force in the world at the end uh, that's one of the things that really is interesting because ho- you know, horror fiction and weird fiction, it tends to be quite white hat, white hat, black hat. You know, these, this is the side of good, this is the side of evil, never the two shall meet, one, one will triumph in the end. Uh, it'll be an upbeat ending, it'll be a downbeat ending. Whereas this is kind of much more kind of, actually, what have we done here? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, That's a terrific ending. And and considering the whole sort of theme of colonialism, which is also as strong, if not stronger, I think, of um, in this story than the actual ideas of race and hereditary. I think that that puts a whole different spin on the story, and it kind of, I think, it, it, if it had just been about re- the call of ancient racial blood, it would be a lot more uncomfortable. But in fact, it has these other elements which flip it the other way, and and it is kind of, uh, you know, imperialism, colonialism at their mm-hmm. worst, in being destructive, and uh, you know, destroying. I mean, as a, a lot did happen. I mean, you know. And indeed, sadly, still happens in places where, you know, relics of ancient cultures are destroyed by invading new cultures. You say, we're getting rid of that stuff. That has to go. And it's lost forever. It's it's a very, I mean, I was very, very sort of fascinated by this story because all the other um, John Book and I've read has been a lot more two-fisted mm-hmm. adventure stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas this has a real sort of sense of poet, poetry and, uh, you know, a real sort pathos. of philosophy in it, yes, and pathos. That's a good word, yes, yes, definitely. I I think it's it's beautifully written. I mean, the description of the landscape is is amazing. Um, it, everything is silver, and the the cut. You know, he 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 compares it to things we were supposed to know. You know, it looks like Surrey, but imagine every every dale has a has a, a stream running through it, and the 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 number of descriptions just of the of the skyline of South Africa, it's incredibly clear, uh, you know, that the love that Lawson has is reflected by by Buchan himself, who you know he had been to South Africa, and um, there is a <laughs> um, we 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 I I think it'd be fair to our listeners to uh to give a to give a little flavor of the text, so I I sure. I, I have I have some here. Okay, at midday it cleared, and the afternoon was a pageant of pure color. The wind sang to, sank to a low breeze. The sun lit the infinite green spaces and kindled the wet forest to a jeweled coronal. Lawson gasmingly admired it all as he cantered bareheaded up a bracken-clad slope. God's country, he said twenty times. I've found it. Take a piece of Saxon downland, put a stream in every hollow and a patch of wood, and at the edge when the cliffs at home would fall to the sea, put a cloak of forest muffling the scarp and dropping thousands of feet to the blue plains. Take the diamond air of the Gamagrat and the riot of color which you get by a West Highland lockside in late September. Put flowers everywhere, the things we grow in hothouses, geraniums like sunshades and arms like trumpets. That will give you a notion of the countryside we were in. I began to see that after all, it was out of the common. And mm-hmm. it goes on and on, talk about the lens mm-hmm. and streams and lens. It's... You know, it's it's like I want to go here and take my camera. Yeah. Damn it! It's beautiful, right? Um, so, um, among amongst the beauty uh, of descriptions in in the story, um, to me, the, it, there's kind of like a beautiful. I mean, maybe it's just beautiful writing, but also the description of Lawson is very sensual. <laughs> I want to read this because I think it's kind of interesting. Um, being a fair man, he was gloriously tanned, and there was a clear line at his shirt collar to mark the limits of his sunburn. I'd know, I, you know, the reason he's doing this is because he's going to set him up as, you know, he's grown fat and pallid and all the problems that he has later on, maybe. Um, 
so uh, continues. Um, I had first known him years ago when he was a broker's clerk working on a half commission. Then he had gone to South Africa, and soon I heard he was a partner in a mining house, which was doing wonders with some gold areas in the north. The next step was his return to London as a new millionaire, young, good-looking, wholesome and timid, uh, so wholesome in mind and body, and much sought after by the mothers of marriageable girls. <laughs> we played polo together and bunted a little in the season, but there were signs that he did not propose to become a conventional English gentleman. <laughs> he refused to buy a, ba- a, buy a place in the country, though half the homes of England were at his disposal. He declared he was a very busy man <laughs> and had not time to be a squire. So there's a, there's actually quite a bit of that um, description of just his physicality. Um, and, and I'm not just saying, you know, the the stuff where it says, you know, he's got these Jewish eyes at certain points in the story or anything like that. Um, it's just like a, it's, these guys are really close friends. <laughs> and I don't, uh, yeah. It's what we now call a bromance, isn't it? It is yes. very, I mean, mm-hmm. at the very least, uh, uh, you know, we were at school together, you know, we, we didn't like hanging out with girls. Um, it's kind of, yeah, homo uh, erotic in a certain sense. Um, later on, when he's got his house built, right, he still doesn't have a wife. He still doesn't have uh, any interest in children. Um, he walks around either naked or in flannels all the time. And then when our hero, the unnamed narrator, comes to uh, visit again, he also dresses in flannels and goes out uh, on the veldt, you know, uh, practically naked, uh, barefooted, um, laying on the grass, watching his friend as he, you know, wanders over the, you know, beautiful landscape. There is sort of a a homo uh, erotic sort of thing to this and i i was it didn't really you know i was this just that maybe that's just the gorgeousness of the writing right but well, then there is something oh, actually i remember in t.s Eliot though about wearing flannels uh-huh. how much the way it might be in the waistline and it's it's definitely in the love song of j alfred prufrock uh-huh. of uh, i will walk around the along the beach now where my flannels rolled and I seem to remember there's a reference to it in the Wasteland as well, or another Eliot poem. And I think it was kind of gentlemen who, who strode around the place just wearing flannels were seen as <laughs> <clears throat> somewhat decadent and foppish. Yeah. yeah. So that, that might be a touch, or it might be just a case of that was kind of in a hot climate, sort of de rigueur casual clothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there could be that could be that touch to it there of kind of that he has got soft and decadent. Yeah, uh, there's, there's <clears throat> definitely, you know, they they both wear it, and you know, maybe it's the climate. I don't know, but what what I came across um, in rereading the story over and over again, mm-hmm. um, I got obsessed sort of with you know this period of colonial history in South Africa, and um, for years and years I had been trying to track down this. Uh, I think it's an eight part miniseries on a guy named Cecil Rhodes. You guys know about him? Yes, yep, yes. yep, yep, the, the Empire Builder. Right, the Empire Builder. That's the name for him. We still know about him because of his Rhodes scholarship, right? There was a country in South Africa called... Rhodesia. Uh, mm-hmm. Rhodesia that just went away in the 70s, right? Um, kind of uh, 
taking his his colonials colonialization colonialization efforts and uh, expanding upon them, um, and we're you know, yeah, we people of Africa are still uh, burdened with a lot of the legacy of that. This guy, um, like uh, Cecil Rhodes in this in this story, the Lawson, uh, like Cecil Rhodes, made his money in mining in South Africa, uh, not just in gold. Uh, Rhodes, but also diamonds, of course, De Beers. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what I found out during the course of my fi- actually eventually finding that documentary, it's on YouTube, actually. Um, uh, not documentary, the miniseries is, uh, and subsequent research, is that Rhodes was probably really, really gay. Um, and Buchan knew him quite well. In fact, I believe he wrote an uh, an a biography of him which is pretty interesting mm. they were both in South Africa um, Buchan was more governmental than um, mining concerns but um, uh, Rhodes was making money hand over fist in and, and did build a giant country estate basically making his own colony as this guy proposes to do in the story I just found that that was too, too interesting not to mention. It's not surprising. It's like this could be. I mean, what, what another thing that clued me into it is in the audio drama. Mm-hmm. His name, the main character's name, the narrator's name is Bucken, right? John Bucken. They because he doesn't have a name in the story. He's just uh, uh, the anonymous narrator. Um, it makes a little bit of sense to make that jump. And uh, there's no reason to think, you know, that he isn't named John Buchan other than it isn't mentioned. Right. It's just, uh, just it's an easy it's an easy insert. It's very mm. easy because it says we were sitting around the campfire and the guy's name above that is John Buchan. I'm, I'm looking I'm looking at a list of uh, John Buchan's works. He didn't write a biography of Rhodes. He wrote a bunch of biographies. So Walter, so Walter Raleigh, he wrote a biography of Julius Caesar, Oliver Cromwell, Caesar Augustus. I don't know that it was an. I don't know that it was a, a book. A book. I think it may have been an article. Oh, okay. Um, he wrote a ton of stuff. Yeah, I'm right? all, yeah. It's like wrote kind of stuff. Did stuff in World War One and was Governor General of Canada. Like, when did he sleep? Well, that's the thing that <laughs> I, I referred to, gentlemen, to the uh, the first world. War hidden history blog that has uh, copious copious um, descriptions of what John Buchan was doing and how he is sort of this, according to the the um, the posts, sort of at the center of uh, spying during World War One and propaganda and. I can see it. Um, he, you know, he becomes Lord Tweedsmere, right? He wasn't born Lord Tweedsmere. He wasn't born a, a lord. Mm. He's appointed a lord, right? Um, and you don't get that for nothing, usually. And he didn't get it because he was rich. He got it because he was of service. Yeah, the, he was on, the son of a on, minister. Yeah, mm-hmm. on the blog, it, it's, you know, he, he's in the secret elite, Right. And what what that means exactly? Not sure. But it makes sense that he would be rewarded with uh, 
uh, a title for services rendered. Um, but it's it also says, and what's nice about this blog is that it does have tons of citations, so it isn't coming from nowhere. But um, it said that anybody who, who who was powerful or famous who came to London, talk, buck and talk to them. And it was like he was um, advisors to a series of monarchs and uh, prime ministers. Sort of behind the power, as it were. Yeah, it, it, it might be off topic to 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 speculate. My my brain's thinking about using John Buchan as he's the kind of guy that, for like, if you had a role playing game set in the nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, he'd be the mm-hmm. guy bankrolling your characters. Go and do this for me. I will reward <laughs> you. you right. go, we'll go off in Africa and find out about this weird uh, weird cult. I need to yeah. know about it. And it has that sort of um, uh, everybody's a, everybody who goes to Oxford, right, like Cecil Rhodes does, um, they, they're just sort of, oh, he's one of us, right? The sort of the reason Kim Philby becomes uh, such a problem is because he was one of us. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it so you can, what we call the old boy network here, and it, you know. Right. Yeah. It's, it still exists. I think culturally there's been a shift of that for kind of – uh, generations younger than mine, like my father's generation, they grew up with kind of a view that government was government, business was business, and there wasn't any shady de- dealings going on. There were checks and balances. Now we take that as read that there are <laughs> backhanders, shady deals forged between yep. business and government, and you know there's there's a revolving door policy between the you know <laughs> houses of government and the the heads of uh, big industries and various mm-hmm. honorary seats on boards and governorships and all the rest uh you know yeah. now that that isn't conspiracy anymore now we accept actually that is that's how it goes right. goes on and that's right. historically you can say that has always gone on um, yeah. I mean, I know this, this does at first glance, you think, whoa, we went to tinfoil hat territory with this blog. <laughs> but when you actually start looking at it and reading it, and it's, it is kind of, well, actually, it's not. It is. There have always been these relationships. I mean, we said, you know, uh, you know, our today's author, he got, you know, he was rewarded with governorship of Canada. Mm-hmm. And something I think that's often not appreciated by people who haven't studied history is that. Um, the idea of the hereditary aristocracy is a lot more transient than people care to realize because um, nobility was created by uh, appointment from the crown in England and in, in other places in Europe as well. It was done by royal say-so, and equally, it was taken away just as quickly if you fell out of favor or you screwed up, you, your family would be dispossessed, your lands and title would go to somebody else who had been a good boy. <laughs> yep, especially during um, civil wars. Absolutely. Um, uh, this you've heard the phrase, "Oh, that gone to the wall." Mm-hmm. No, I haven't and, heard and that. It's one. a it's a phrase in English. For someone who's gone downhill, it, it says it said it's gone to the wall, and that refers mm-hmm. to the fact that in old um, English uh, churches, the aristocracy would actually have a pew of their own. In very old churches, oh, right. they would even right. be covered over so they couldn't see the riffraff and hoi polloi. Right. Um, worship but, the same church, yeah. but not so that you have to see the yep. hoi polloi. Yep. You had the best seats in, in, the, in the building. But if your family suffered an ill fortune, you'd lose that privilege. You'd lose your family pew. And you'd be with the riffraff and the hoi polloi, who in many cases didn't have pews 
but there was around a lot of English churches a little um, stone step at the base of the wall which people could use as a little seat mm. and that is the meaning of gone to the wall huh. <laughs> Literally, you know, the family, they had pride of praise, but they screwed up. They lost their titles and lands. And now they're with the plebs, you know, squatting down on literally just, you know, a little stone stool built into the walls itself. There, there's another phrase uh, like that in here. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it might have been only in the audio drama, but I think it's in the, the text itself. It's um, Lawson had gone to seed. <laughs> One of those phrases, you know, that... <sighs> means basically he's falling apart. Mm-hmm. He's, um, but uh, I thought it was um, kind of uh, might be a pun as well with all the trees planting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is, I think, um, a contrast between the fertility um, and lush gardens he's created. Mm-hmm. The fact mm-hmm. that he, he personally, the flower of his youth, as it were, has faded and wilted here rather than fr- thrived. Right. Yeah, uh, that power's been turned to uh, Ashtaroth. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we should get back to the story. Uh, uh, I mean, we've been yeah, we, talking about Buck in a bit. Yeah. But I, I do want to point out one more thing before I leave and uh, leave the Cecil Rhodes territory that we're in mm-hmm. in this story. I mean, this is this is... Exactly what Cecil Rhodes did is drive north and, you know, claim new lands. And, you know, we got him. I believe he was the one who wanted to connect uh, the empire a lot. He was more colonialist than yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he wanted to build a railroad from South Africa to Egypt. Right. And turn, make the entire continent British, right? Yep. Um, in any case, uh, in, in that drive north... Um, one of the things that happened in Rhodes's life mm-hmm. is that one of his very, very, very good friends, <laughs> if you know what I mean, um, got ill um, in the country. And uh, he was nursemaided by Rhodes and uh, died. Um, and that uh, is followed by a visit from one of his, uh, his uh, governmental friends. Uh, it, it's almost like I mean the 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 theme of getting sick and um, uh, nursing someone is not unique to uh, Rhodes or anything like that, but it's a theme that comes up again and again in Buckins' writings. Um, I don't know uh, enough about Buckin to say more than that, but it, I just found sort of that background in be- behind the story very interesting. Now, back to the story proper. <laughs> back, back, back to the story proper. Uh, I, I want to focus on the, uh, the conflicted nature of, of, the, uh, of the narrator in tearing down this grove and how, how, how it's not so simple as, oh, I'm destroying evil and mm-hmm. now my friend will get. So I, 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 want, I want to read a little bit from this again. So Please do. Then we worked to cut down the trees. The slim stems were an easy task to a good woodman, and one after another they toppled to the ground. In the meantime, as I watched, I became conscious of a strange emotion. It was as if someone was pleading with me, a gentle voice, not threatening but pleading, something too fine for the sensual ear, if they're sensual again, but touching inner chords of the spirit. So tenuous it was and distant that I could think of no personality behind it. Rather, it was the viewless, bodiless grace of this delectable veil, some old, exquisite divinity of the groves. 
There was the heart of all sorrow in it, and the soul of all loveliness. It seemed a woman's voice, some lost lady who had brought nothing but goodness unrepaid to the world. And what the voice told me was I was destroying her last shelter. That was the pathos of it. The voice was homeless. As the axes flashed in the sunlight and the wood grew thin, that gentle spirit was pleading with me for mercy and a breath, brief respite. seemed to be telling of a world for centuries grown coarse and pitiless, of long, sad wanderings, of hardly one shelter. And the peace was the little of all she sought from men. There was nothing terrible in it, no thought of no wrongdoing. The spell to which Semitic blood held the mystery of evil was to me of the northern race, only delicate and rare and beautiful. And it goes it's, on and on about, yeah, it goes into a more uh, Israelite stuff. And it's like, uh, it's like, so, I'm, it, it, it's touching. It's like mm-hmm. just destroying, destroying this last bit of uh, untrammeled loveliness from this, this poor spirit that has wandered all the way from the Middle East to here. And this is its last refuge and fucking the well, like the narrator destroys it to uh save his friend yeah I, I i didn't i didn't think of it like as a um uh it, i mean it, it is parallel to an extinction right of a of a of an animal mm-hmm. or uh, it's just or maybe a plant but more importantly it, of 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 an animal right it's the destruction of a of a of a wandering spirit that's rooted itself here. It's not quite a genus loci because it's never always been here. It's, it came here running away from the destruction of man and now cornered. It's destroyed at last. Yeah, I was, I, I'm not sure that it, it did run away. I mean, certainly it was driven out from the other places, but like piteous, long, I, sad wanderings. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is this. I, I was thinking like, is the what's in the, like? I kind of want to read the story from from Lawson's point of view because I don't know what he's thinking. Like, I I know what he's doing and it's amazing and I'm like, what the hell is he doing? I'm I'm watching over uh, the narrator's shoulder. What is he doing there? Right, like wandering, beating a a path around the the tower. Um, you know, wearing that big uh, alabaster moon on his head, and oh, I think I think himself. Yeah, I think it's ob- I think it's obvious to me. He's he's uh, worshiping seeing this uh, this minor divinity, giving something that this divinity hasn't had in a long time. Not, Blood sacrifice mm, or something. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, it, it, it's closer to killing him. Yes, it's it's keep it is literally he's. He's sacrificing himself in the most literal way. That yeah. his his depleting life force is literally keeping this this lonely deity going in its last mm-hmm. refuge. Mm-hmm. Well, I find it interesting because I mean, um, so as someone who's played a lot of the Call of Cthulhu role playing game <laughs> and read, read read a lot of Cthulhu mythos literature and, and things of the same ilk, I mean, it's mm-hmm. a classic trope: is that there is the cursed temple ruin or the abandoned mine where something has took up residence from elder times mm-hmm. or there's a, a tiki fetish or, or you know or some ancient <laughs> stone that is the link to some ancient horrible power and at the end you know 
the heroes, they, you know, dynamite, they mine, they raise the temple, they just burn the right. fetish, they cast the stone into the sea or whatever. And that, you know, the threat is buried forever. And mm. we have the same thing here, except it's kind of, um, was it something really bad what we have done here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's, what I mean? There is that kind of, oh, oh, oh perhaps we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe yeah, there's another so, way. Yeah, it's not quite so two-fisted like, oh, we destroyed evil, it's dead. Mm. But they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. The, the, I mean, the very last line of this of this story, and maybe it's too early to bring in this podcast, but I'll read it anyway. And then my heartache returned, and I knew I had driven something lovely and adorable from its last refuge on Earth. Wham. Mm. Yeah, that, that's what, that, that's the thing is, is, I'm not sure that he's killed the goddess exactly as much as he's he's taken away the last you know doorway that the goddess can express on the earth like uh the model for this temple this tower is uh in the great zimbabwe right a destroyed Mm. city Mm -hmm. Uh, so that one you know they found uh, obviously i mean that's the other reason i kind of want to read it from lawson's point of view is what happened in those three years, right? Well, this he, is, he does ask the narrator, because the, the narrator makes an allusion to Ashtaroth, and he says, well, well where, where can I read up on that? Right. And it is kind of, I mean, if I was to sort of do some amateur armchair speculation, mm-hmm. it's kind of, you think kind of, he was still actually quite all the rage at the turn of the century, if you're having a, a country house to have a mock temple in the ground, What's uh-huh. yeah. you know called a folly, folly and, yes, yeah, and it's kind of he thought I've got, I've got the real deal here. You know what was it about? You know, and that's how it's he's become drawn into it, and mm-hmm. maybe you know what he started in, kind of like a lot of um, Victorian Edwardian chaps who formed druid orders, and mm-hmm. um, set up Morris dancing um, groups <laughs> or, or sides as they're strictly called. And, you know, they reinstituted egg rolling and uh, uh, cheese rolling and maypole dances. And, you know, they sort of actually recreated, often from the whole cloth, what later people in the 20th century have took to be surviving ancient folk traditions. <laughs> that he's like, well, I've got the real temple. What's the real deal? And, you know, did it in that spirit of, you know, hist- you know like historical recreation. And found he's dealing with something very real and fallen under its spell. And I think at the point we sort of, you know, enter the story, you, you know, he does say it's kind of you've come at a bad time, and it's kind of I'll be I'll be fine again in a few days once the full moon's passed. But w- when the full moon is strong, he is completely enthralled to it, and he right. he has to carry out these rites now that are just wearing him down. But a, f- a week later, he'd be more his old self. But he'd still be, he'd still be running to fat and not taking care of himself. Oh yeah, yeah. He'd still still be a degeneration, but yeah. um, he would have he'd be able to cover it up a lot better and keep it secret, and just say uh, I've got a touch of the touch of the you know dropsy or yellow fever or yeah. whatever was you know fashionable tropical complaint he could possibly have. You know? Right. <laughs> of, um, it is it is very much like a. Uh, the, the revenge of the land as well, right? Um, one of the things that that keeps the Europeans from taking over all of Africa is the disease, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Egypt is, uh, you know, it's not one they fully conquered, but South Africa is the best that the Europeans could get hold of because it is so mild compared to the rest of Africa and at higher elevations, like this place is set, you look down on the tropics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it has all the, all the beauty of, uh, uh, English countryside, um, when it was at its most beautiful, but also has access to the, the, the hot, the hot temperature and the good hunting and all that stuff. Um, I, I really, like, I, I love that there's that three years, the house is built, it, it's palatial, right? It's got, um, the, the gorgeous setting, he's got servants, he's got, he's built a road, uh, from, from Tiki, which, uh, I assume is somewhere in South Africa, to this, this uplands, this scarf, as it's called, uh, and then in the drive to it, uh, there's flowers on either side of the road growing naturally. It's gorgeous without as if it's been designed that way. And then when he gets there, everything is beautiful and the grove's still there. He goes into the house. He sees the library, which I want to talk more about that library. I love that library. Um, there's He sees the moon of alabaster, which I assume he's like – either gone on an archaeological mission to find or had purchased from someone who had done similar. And he's also found the birds. And the birds uh, are, aren't the only thing that are... They're, I, I believe... Uh, this must be out of the Bible or something like doves, it, right? Doves, yes. Yeah, the, they're turtle doves, I think, right? Because they're green. Uh, is, are, are they green? Can't remember if they're. Uh, the I think it, it's mentioned are, that they're green. Yeah, they are green in the story. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So they're turtle doves, which are uh, very. Be- I mean, they're essentially beautiful pigeons, right? Yeah, green doves. Talking about mm-hmm. the treetops. Yep. There's. Uh, th- he's dug up the the moon of alabaster. He's dug up the um, the the birds, which are real, right? Though they are they were found at um, the Great Zimbabwe. Oh yes, if you, if you look on Google Images, there's nearly well, very nearly a full page of uh, different of these strange orc-like bird carvings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from good all over in Zimbabwe. Up, you dig up the word orc, right? Mm. That's the thing. Is is also that's happening at this time is everything is going extinct, right? They're <laughs> killing off everything, mm. and the sin that if you that happens at the end of the story is. It, it's kind of like, yeah, it's a shame that we have to destroy this country, but that's what we got to do. That's my job as a, you know, agent for the government. Uh, we got to, yeah, we got to burn down this forest, but how else are we going to get the settlers to move in, right? Mm-hmm. The sort of attitude to it. Um, and the the two-fisted action that takes place, right, in the in this story, the, the they, they get out shotguns. They go out a-hunting. And what do they do? They beat the the, for, the the groves trees so that the birds fly up. They sh- they make short work of them shooting fifteen in the first volley, and then cut down all the trees and blow up the temple, burn burn the trees, uh, throw the birds on top of the uh, the pyre, and then salt the earth. 
this is some biblical shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is heavy dude. This is like, uh, I don't know, uh, the Punic Wars. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, one place says I'm going to improve upon you, Josiah. It's like, oh, let's go even further. Though. Oh, man. Yeah, it, and, it is very Old Testament sort of. Must and he's doing all this because his friend is sick, right? Um, it, it, if you think like if what's an outsider who comes in and says, what's been going on here? Right. Well, see, my friend's sick and I think this forest has caused him some trouble. So I'm salting the earth and paying all these <laughs> men to blow it up. I've it just seems... dynamited a priceless ancient temple that was perfectly oh preserved. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, uh, unlike the, uh, the one at the great Zimbabwe. It yeah. was complete. Mm. Right? <laughs> On this, this, uh, there's a line in the story about how there was not a. Uh, this was a land without history. Again, like one of those colonial sort of attitudes, right? Oh, the people who lived here, they didn't have a history. Mm. Right? They, they were dumb. They'd never do anything. So it's all right for us to come in, smack them <laughs> overhead with our hardback British blue passports, and steal their country. <laughs> Purpose of visit, colonialism. That's all you need to know, Johnny Foreign now. Whack, we're having this. Get a railroad up here now. <laughs> it's kind of sad, but it's true. <laughs> well, see, that, that, was, that was the attitude. I mean, I'm being, I'm being flippant, but the, the lack of any sort of great ancient ruins in Africa, or mm. ignoring them when they found them, was a justification for the kind of colonialism that went on. That they... they wouldn't have done in Greece or ancient Egypt because, oh, there's a lot of history here. We, we can't just bulldoze this and put up a new condo. But in Africa, it was kind of, well, these people have never done anything. It's for their own good, damn it. <laughs> I want to I point out something else. That's, uh, this is maybe harkening back to earlier in conversation, but do you notice all the character names in here? They're all sun. <laughs> they all end in sun. Oh, uh, so yes, yes. There's Lawson. He's the main character. Uh, is he followed the law? He's the son of the law. I don't know. But another guy mentioned is Isaacson. Obviously, uh, he's the Jewish one, right? Mm -hmm. And Isaacson is the one who offered to buy his house in uh, London. Mm -hmm. um, and there's Jobson, who is the uh, he's the Scotsman, right? Yes, yeah. yes, the factor, as they call him. The, uh, right. Uh, the, by the way, the, uh, factor is not just um, uh, an honorific. It's also what they call the people who own like big companies like uh, or run big companies like uh, the Hudson's Bay Company or the East India Company, right? Yeah, Factor, Factotum. Mm. Mm. Right. And um, I get the sense that when, when uh, at the beginning of the story, when Lawson says, uh, or the narrator asks who owns this land, he says, my company or someone who's going to sell it to me, right? <laughs> um, one of the things that indicates just how rich he is, um, at the beginning of the story, we think they're just hunting, right? And then we find out uh, the, the uh, wagons, not wagon, but wagons are behind them, right? These guys are, well, one of them is incredibly rich, and he just got even richer. Um, he is like Rhodes. He, he has more money than the queen, right? Um, so when he talks about not going back to London and selling his, his collection of Ming 
whatever's he's bought. Ming pots. Um, Ming pots, right. Um, and the great art that he's found there and all that stuff. And then he has it all brought down. He has a road built out to his estate. Um, there's not that many characters, it seems like, in the um, in the in the house. But one of the things that's mentioned uh, while um, the narrator's in the library is that at first he thinks that the the sounds outside are by a watchman. Yes. Right? Because mm-hmm. a house yeah. of this size would certainly have a night watchman. That tells you, like, this is not like a tiny house, right? This is an estate. This is, is mm-hmm. a massive estate with a security force outside of it. And when it comes time to blow up the tower, um, one of the things Jobson says is there's no um, – uh, the natives won't do – well, maybe that's only in the audio drama. But the natives won't be uh, caught anywhere near it, um, won't go to the temple. Um, and so they he hires local people. Well, those local people weren't there three years ago, right? This was empty land that hadn't been gone into probably for centuries, at least by white men, mm-hmm. right? Um, so all of those local folks who who get hired and uh, have he has to indemnify, right? Because the boss might not like that his garden temple is being destroyed. Obviously, work for Lawson. So there's. But the character names are Lawson, Jobson, um, Isaacson, right? And there's also, I think there's another son in there, um, the guy who designed the house. Um, he said he would get somebody to design the house. Maybe it was Isaacson. But um, I just thought that that was really interesting. It, it was like a constant reminder. Or maybe it was Jacobson. I'm just I don't looking know. now. Of, uh, <laughs> I never noticed anything. Adamson. 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 Adamson, of course, another yeah. Jewish sort of the adding the son in the name right makes it sort of like uh half in, half english right half english and uh jewish uh J- jobson or jobson right if it's jobson then it's it's uh, biblical it doesn't sound like a scottish name but maybe i don't <laughs> maybe i don't no, there's, know there's a lot of jobsons in scotland so is there okay yeah, this is a, um <laughs> a Scottish punk band, uh, uh, the Skids, that were headed by a chap called Richard Jobson. Ah. Mm. Okay. Well, I, I I just think that it was interesting that of all the characters named in the story, they're they're all mm. sons. Well, right? there, there, there's it, a, there's one that isn't. Tra- who's that? Travers. Travers. Okay. Uh, uh, who is Travers? Um, I think he's a uh, head servant, isn't he? Oh, yes, yeah. he's the butler, right? Yep, yeah. dinner's right. at eight, ring for Travers, he'll show you your room. Yeah, so yeah, I think he's about the only person without a, without a son right. name besides the uh, unnamed narrator. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, one of the, the names before Lawson becomes Lawson in his family tree is Lawson, right? Um, as in, mm. he was born low. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also, another thing that struck me in rereading for this week's uh, recording was that um, this is a very, even though um, uh, Lovecraft doesn't mention this story 
in supernatural horror and literature. He he does mention the Green Wildebeest and uh, um, a couple other of his shorts. He doesn't mention this story. This story also reminds me of a couple of by Lovecraft um, about a guy who goes away to a another land um, and either builds or rebuilds an ancestral home mm-hmm. um, and comes under bad influence thereabouts. So thinking one, one of the them, ones you're thinking of the moon bog, the moon bogs, one of them mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other ones, the rats in the walls. Of course. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, What's so fun about it is they have the exact same structure, right? There's a narrator who goes away from either the the building site or the uh, never was there in the first place, and then comes and sees after being invited, right, to this country estate um, to find that his his friend has basically become sick and. Um, in both cases, I believe it, it works out much worse than it does for the, the narrator in this case, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or what, what, maybe, maybe I can't remember the moon at the ending of the moon bog. Um, the narrator watches as his friend is lifted up into the sky towards Mm. the moon, Mm -hmm. right? Another, uh, Ashtaroth is, um, moon goddess in a certain sense, um, and then it, uh, who's the narrator of The Rats in the Walls? Uh, it Captain Norris. Isn't Wait, it? doesn't Captain Norris get eaten? I'm pretty sure uh, Captain Norris I think he does. Eaten. He has like the... Uh, I don't know how he's... Rats. Rats. he's, he's as his friend is eating him. These are my last words. <laughs> he's on my chin bone now. <laughs> Something to that effect. Um, uh, Captain Norris um, comes and says... You know, why, chap, what are you doing here with this building? Oh, well, see, I'm excavating a, a temple beneath a, a magnum ma- oh, major. Afraid, yeah, it's, a, the, it's the narrator is doing the excavating in the rats in the walls and has moved into Exxon Priory. And Norris right. is, is, the, is mm-hmm. the friend who keeps dropping by going, what on earth is going on here, man? Yeah. <laughs> it's, they're kind of like identical in the setup, aren't they? And... The, well, there's a there's a lot kind of in fiction in this period about these um, uh, meddling and building on old ruins. Mm. Um, there's the story uh, I can't remember the lady's name, but she edited a whole uh, series um, of like uh, horror stories, creeps by night, and she wrote a very mm. fine tale called Out of the Earth about someone who has foolishly built a cottage on old bury old. old Sort of ancient standing stones and the very nasty Roman elementals come and turn up and uh, <laughs> show their displeasure, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, it, that is does tie into the whole kind of. I mean, horror always is holding up a mirror uh, and providing us with a metaphor for things people are concerned about but aren't necessarily talking about. Mm-hmm. And then in, in this period, I mean. You, you, it's a strong theme in a lot of mummy fiction and it's this idea of we've conquered the world. We're brilliant. We're civilizing the globe and we're a bit nervous whether we're actually doing the right thing. Are we trampling on Mm -hmm. cultures that are older, wiser and know a few things we don't and are we losing something and is something going to get its revenge? Mm -hmm. Um, The connection between all three stories of Moonbog, uh, 
this story and um, the rats in the walls is uh, a theme that also has gone out of fashion today, which is atavism, right? Yes. Where mm. you revert to your ancestral type, mm. right? Um, that, I mean, that is really the driving force behind what what's going on in the Grove of Ashtaroth for Lawson is is the narrator sees him, you know, he's going to build a clean house, right? All with local wood, none of that old furniture mm-hmm. um, from the old old country, get rid of the Ming vases and all that stuff. And then his Jewishness takes over, right? And he s- starts thinking about all the diamonds and, and gold and uh, and stuff like that. And that that's where the creepy... Uh, uh, yeah, Jews are about money and and uh, jewels and, mm. that and greed. Yeah, I'm gonna keep all my stuff. Yeah, I'm gonna right. hoard it all and my my which, my precious. Which is kind of seeing things backwards, right? The reason uh, Jews are in the jewelry business is not because they they're well, there's some sort of love of just hanging around gold. The reason they're called silver uh, silver blatt and uh, gold and a diamond, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, is because those are the industries they're allowed to work in. Yes, right? mm-hmm. industries that uh, allow you to stay at home and do your own work rather than uh, uh, get hired by somebody or own land. Um, so th- th- that inversion, that sort of screwed up understanding of why why people are like that the way they are, is there. But I do, I really like the idea of this as a, um, yeah. We're destroying things in a. It's kind of like an environmental horror story, right? Mm-hmm. With with that utter destruction of species and um, uh, the the trees that have silver bark, right? And the the birds that are always flying above in the sky, you know, above the tower, under the moon. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful beautiful image. Does anybody know why uh, Ashtaroth has changed genders over the years? Because she started as a Ishtar, right? Female. Uh, well, <clears throat> it's to do with the two spellings in the original Hebrew of the Bible. Mm-hmm. One is male and one is female. And whether this is a case of corrupt texts or references to different things with similar names is something that's much debated but i did some checking on the biblical references and i mean if you if you have an interesting weird fiction and the occult you come across the name ashtaroth fairly regularly it's like belzebub mm-hmm. or baal yeah. and the I mean, it's, even, it's, it's, it's one of the big names the, people always drop you know what i mean yeah mm. yeah it's even in the D monster manual is one of the demons of hell ah yes that's ah. right yes uh, it's actually in a real dictionary of demons as well. I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah, uh, he's in a couple. But when you actually sort of start digging into it, the actual law behind it is is very, very scanty in the Bible. Um, the actual verses he references, there's only sort of two references to Ashtaroth, both in uh, one in First Kings, one in Second Kings, and it is about the how the temples were raised, but it doesn't really say much about. That that deity or its worship, other than it's listed in uh, in one, it's actually a King Josiah. Is it you know, it's part of several deities whose holy places he, he erases, along with Moloch and um, uh, say a few others, and so there's kind of this very very scant detail, and there is this um, 
confusion of whether it is actually a male or a female deity. I mean, I think it was largely in Buchan's time thought to be um, a, a female deity, and it was Ishtar, and it was all tying in, going back to um, like Fraser's work with the Golden Bough, which basically mm-hmm. said, oh, all these myths, they're all exactly the same. It's either mother goddesses or it's reborn male sun gods, uh, which now is something that is rather more critically questioned going well actually it's not quite that clear cut and we worked out a lot of dodgy translations we found a lot of people just assume stuff because it fit a pattern and you find like in the 70s uh, well no actually earlier than that dennis wheatley one of his black magic novels um to the devil a daughter features oh, a, that cult, was a movie cult. yes yes with christopher lee 1976 yes. yep and in that astroth is a male deity and he is like an antichrist, sort of literally an antichrist kind of um, um, un- crucified on upside down cross who uh, gets um, uh, what's her name? Natasha Kinsey knocked up to become an avatar of Satan. Nice. Um, I, w- I want to point out that uh, if you if you do Google uh, Ashtoreth, you pro- uh, Ashtoreth, you're probably going to get the wrong entry at first, right? It starts with um uh, the the demon mm. but if you click through to astarte um on the wikipedia entry for astarte um there's a statuette from phoenicia right mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, which is i don't know somewhere in the mediterranean right? phoenicia is north and west of what is now israel basically it's where lebanon is now right the canaanite area right well the, can- well, the canaanites were throughout what Throughout right. Israel and uh, Lebanon. In any case, yeah. in any case, right. the statuette um, here is obviously very female, um, wide hips and boobs and stuff, right? But I love that on her head is it says a horned headdress, uh-huh. but that's not what it is. If you have read this story, right? It's a crescent moon, mm. which is not made clear in the story at all. <clears throat> I see. Like it. I was, oh, you're so, from the, the the picture from the Louvre. Oh, you are so right. Right. So, mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering, like, when I was I was thinking about what's what visually you see in the library. Um, I love that library, by the way. I I love the idea of being out in the wilderness and having all these ancient texts. It's it's a very Lovecraftian library with a nice fireplace and a. Uh, and he stays up all night reading some French novel, right? Which I, I believe had a pun, sort of punny title, like a, it was like a, the Enigma or something, <laughs> you know, pointing out the uh, the story itself. But um, he uh, displayed in the library are the moon made of alabaster, mm. which is probably what this statuette is made out of, um, and the soapstone birds. And in picturing the moon, I thought it, it would be a full moon, like the moon is depicted uh, in, when Lawson is, you know, at his, having his menses mm. or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> because he's literally bleeding, right? It, it, there's some sort of uh, tie into the, the moon cycle thing going on as well. Um, but I was thinking maybe it's a half moon. But here, this makes much more sense with it being a crescent moon, right? Um, and that idea of wearing a crescent moon. Like, I don't know 
where Bucken did it, where he got this image of the guy wandering, you know, walking around the the tower, mm-hmm. cutting himself, wearing a, a moon on it as a headdress. But it's could be from something like this because it isn't evil. It's just not um, not Christian, right, and not Jewish. Um, and there's something there's something really interesting about. Uh, if this is a true, if this these were true events, then that makes the Bible a true story, right? Which means regular capital G God is real, and Astarte is uh, dying but real, or uh, Ashtaroth is dying but real. Um, and what is that relationship with non-Jews to the Christian God? This has not gone in onto into the story. You know what I mean, mm-hmm. like. Um, the thing is, is the covenant that's in the Jewish Bible, the for, uh, Old Testament, right, is with the Jews, not mm. with Christians. And the fact that only Jews are influenced by, only the Semites, as it's put in the story, are uh, subject to the, the call of Ashtaroth, as it were. <laughs> Not the call of Cthulhu, the call of <laughs> Ashtaroth. Um, and the only time the beauty of Ashtaroth's power comes into effect is when when it's under threat by someone who isn't. Like, uh, the narrator never hears the call until he's determined to cut it down, Right. Uh, well, they did hear it when he first sees Lawson. Yeah, he has a he has a taste of it then, and he's but he doesn't hear it like an actual voice until no uh, no. But he does. He suddenly because he, he spots, speaks of suddenly seeing uh, the blood ritual being carried out. It's not being horrific, but uh, uh, you know, as something nurturing. And mm. he stops seeing it as he loses that real kind of body horror he, he kind mm. of has. And at the moment, it's interesting because that, in that scene, he's kind of he's psychically at some sort of an impasse of where he is actually just say he's drawn to go further into the temple. And at the same time, there's something mm-hmm. else keeping him out. And it is kind of whether it's is it, are there two forces at work there? Or is it one or is it one of kind of right? Well, you know, we, we'll beguile you enough so <laughs> you won't come in and interfere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just stay there for now until we're done. You know, you can just have a, you know, you can just have a taste of the main shows, but you know, mm-hmm. no further. And I think that's that's another interesting thing. Is there is there more than one one force at work in in that particular scene? Um, mm-hmm. I uh, when I first wrote about this story, I, I, I said it was four years ago. It was not. It was five years ago now. <laughs> um, I must have read it prior to that as well. Um, I made uh, some comparisons to a story by Philip K. Dick. I don't know if you guys have read it, but it's a really good story called Of Withered Apples. This is a story about a a woman who, married to a man, asks her husband for permission to go outside like she's a little kid. Mm-hmm. And she goes off and wanders uh, off into the hills behind their home. And um, the reason she's doing this is because she's being called to uh, by a tree. Ah. The tree is an apple tree that's on a uh, 
uh, rocky land that's had some sort of disaster happen to it. It's a, a farm that went bad or something. She's called to the tree um, and they almost have like a sexual relationship uh, with the tree sort of calling, saying, come on, baby. And she's like, no, I don't want to. And then um, she, you know, it tries to grab her. Uh, basically, and then uh, she runs off, afraid of it. But um, as she's running down the hill, um, it throws. <laughs> it doesn't actually show it throwing, but we know that it did. One of its apples at her, um, as, and it rolls down the hill beside her. And it's like all the other apples on that tree. They're sort of scabby and withered, hence the t- title of the story. Mm-hmm. She, But she picks it up and eats it. After she, uh, sorry, bad move, a bad move, right? <laughs> like, why is she eating this 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 withered apple, right? Um, she eats it, um, goes home, um, gets sick, and dies. Um, her husband buries her, um, and a year later, or the spring after, goes to visit her um, her uh, grave. And there's an apple tree very fast growing up out of her, her grave. Um, it's kind of like uh, that call, the call of nature, right? It's, it, it wants you, it's, it, it needs you, um, and it, it's using you in the same way that Ashtaroth is using Alasan to get the worship. It, it's in this... That's what that's what you know, Paul. You were putting it like um, she was driven out of all of these other temples. Yeah, and I got the sense that it's like um, these sacred groves are all over the world. Is what I got the sense of, mm-hmm. and that the they've been cut down or destroyed in all the other places. And this wild one, away from uh, people, was preserved somehow because of the lack of people around. Um, the Christians hadn't come in, the Jews hadn't come in, uh, and whatever, however it was built, uh, no, no way of knowing, right? Um, it was like the last portal through which the goddess could, uh, communicate fully. Uh, That's almost like suggesting the goddess is not of this earth, but is it like something adjacent? She's to the it? moon, right? Yeah. That's it's the she's she's the moon. That, that's why it ties in so well to the moon bog, right? Where he's literally pulled up off of the earth and in, by a moonbeam. Okay. I I don't I don't know what it means, <laughs> but I, I really dig it. Um, 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 the the other story I'm thinking of, or oh, the other author I'm thinking of, as we're talking about this is. Um, Haggard, mm, and she. Yeah, it's very Haggard-like, yeah. isn't it? Yes, it's like yes. You, you, ancient, mm. a, ancient powers in the dark of Africa that were have been untouched by, British, by, by man for a long time, but it's like still lurking, lurking there. And a, an uh, unwitting British guy goes into the heart of Africa, and things happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a completely, it's like a very different kind of story. There you have a, there you have a lot more overt racism with, and uh, it's more two fisted. Uh, more two fisted. This. Yeah, this is much more uh, elegaic. 
Yeah. And wistful. It's all, it, I, I also think it's just beautiful. Like, it's incredibly well written, beautiful to read um, on the page. It's beautiful to read. It's so beautiful to, to listen to, to as listen well. To. Thank you, Mr. Dim Moon. Indeed. Uh, this, well, this was a real pleasure to read because um, it is just so exquisitely crafted. I, 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 that's why I can go back to it again and again, even, the, and it doesn't tell you what it means, right? That's what I love about it. It's one of those just uh, layers and layers, which is kind of very unusual for a, a short story of this period. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it reminds me in many ways of kind of the kind of stories kind of, um, so more recent writers in the last few years have written when they've sort of gone back and they've, they've done a pastiche of classic sort of pulp literature or adventure literature or, you know, old school weird fiction. Mm-hmm. And they tell that kind of story in the same language, but they bring in these layers of questioning and ambiguity, which the originals often don't have. And, you know, it just, this really sort of reads like, like one of those kind of, um, sort of not a pastiche, but these kind of homages that are also reinterpretations. The kind of thing that Neil Gaiman, Warren Ellis, mm. Alan Moore do really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and M- Michael Moorcock as well was doing it e- sort of even earlier. <laughs> um, and it's kind of, it is really kind of, I think you could really fool someone to thinking this was written in the last few couple of decades rather mm-hmm. than 1910 because it has these themes and that ambiguity of where you can see it's addressing certain things, but unlike a lot of literature of the period, it's not clear cut of, yep, that that's for us. That's for them. This is good. This is bad. And there aren't those sort of very clear lines. And so ambiguity, I think is a definitely a, something that comes to the fore throughout the 20th century is that, you know, the end of the 20th century, things get very ambiguous and not entirely sure. <laughs> Whereas, you know, literature at the turn of the century tend to be a lot more polemic mm-hmm. i think it would it would make an amazingly good comic book adaptation if it was you know full length graphic novel length you know um it surprises me that there hasn't been more adaptations of it there's just the the novelette uh turned into the audio drama for escape uh, they did it uh, i think two different versions but just the one adaptation doesn't seem justifiable considering how how visually stunning it is i think it would make a great comic book well i think um, i think Buchan's a lot like arthur conan doyle i mean he's got the albatross of richard hanratty in the 39 steps round yeah. his neck and people right. think of him as an adventure writer the same as they think of as doyle as being writing just wrote sherlock holmes and when you actually mm-hmm. dig in you find they dabbled in weird fiction and historical fiction and wrote all these other things uh, they're often a lot more interesting than um, their major canon, as it were, they're best known for. Uh, no, not to run down either the Hanratty books or the Sherlock Holmes books. Obviously, they're classics, but you know, you discover they're a, they have a reputation and they're known for certain books, and you realise they're a, an even better writer than you thought when you discover all these different literary highways and byways they were also, um, you know, exploring at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, I think. I thought, I think you. I think you're right, exactly right. People jump to the who's Oh yeah, he wrote he wrote the Thirty Nine Steps. He's that guy, and not and completely ignore anything else he ever touched. Well, this no, I, I, this I'm story first appeared this. in a book called The Moon in Jureth, which was short stories and poems. 
mm-hmm. which is kind of not Ugh. what you expect from the author of the Thirty Nine Steps. No, but he wrote. He just wrote a ton, uh, mm. as many people did. Um, and those adventure books are the ones that you know sold, right? That were turned into Hitchcock movies and TV movies and all that stuff. But there's, uh, I think, the last time. That I, or maybe the first time I heard of it, uh, this story, um, I, I was reading, I think I was listening to an audiobook of Christopher Hitchens' essays. Mm-hmm. And he was talking just, I think, just about great literature and going through it. And um, I start the, the post I did in 2012 with a quote from uh, where it originally came from in the Atlantic Monthly, uh, 2004. I want to read this because I think it, it summarizes the story and the the haunting quality that allows you to reread it over and over again. So he, he described it this way. In a remarkable short story, The Grove of Ashtaroth, the hero finds himself obliged to destroy the gorgeous little temple of a sensual cult because he believes that by doing so, he will salvage the health and sanity of a friend. But he simultaneously believes himself to be committing an unpardonable act of desecration. And the eerie voice that besieges him to stay his hand is unmistakably feminine. To me, that quote is pretty accurate. But it sort of highlights the male-female dynamic. There's no women in this story, right? The only woman is the... Is the goddess? Uh, ask Mr. Jimin. Um, what I've been trying to wrap my head about around the unnameable. Is it wholly a comedic piece? Because I think it is. Uh, the Lovecraft unnameable. Yeah. Well, it, 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 I think if I'm right, it was it was a pop <laughs> at a veil to dig at someone. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, it, so it's it got, spent so much time doing that, and then I, I'm like, I think these are all jokes. Well, the thing was, he, his first published story was Dagon, and it went out in a fanzine, and he got a certain amount of criticism for it, and for his language, and he wrote an essay, uh, The Defense of Dagon. And um, he, then later he collaborated with uh, C. Eddie Burton, on a story of the love dead, oh, which got rejected right. for being too gruesome. And both, I think both those things sort of bubbled up in the unnameable. Cause again, that mm. there's a reference to his friend that had a weird story rejected as being too much for the milk sops. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a huge, it's kind of, I don't know. It reminds me of sort of some of like Poe's or Hawthorne stories that are kind of, all, no, um, they're like kind of like black jokes, really. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, there's certainly in, in American weird fiction, or when I was digging into old Halloween stuff, there's an awful lot of these sort of ghost stories that turn into jokes. Yeah. And the Enable seems to be very much playing on that tradition. And like the the narrator is very, um, very, very tongue in cheek when he's he's describing his friend, the principal. Mm. Um, I was, I was, I was like, uh, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into this weird story, 
<laughs> we start, wait a second. What's all this about the Congregationalists and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? It's like, the, the guy is just a pop, uh, sort of a, well, maybe that's a story for another day. Uh, okay. So, uh, the Grove of Ashtaroth, I'm pretty much ready, I think. Um, there's a, this, I will send this one more link to, um, this is just a story sum, uh, story summaries for, um, his other stuff as well that's horror or supernaturally. Ah, um, excellent. Paul. Somewhere is a Paul. There he is. Somewhere. I'm somewhere. Yeah. There you are. Um, so you just scroll down a bit uh, on this post and, um. It gives uh, story summaries for uh, most of his stuff. Mm. And uh, uh, the Green Wildebeest also has a sacred grove. Um, What else? Oh, record. (laughs) Never mind. Let's get started. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. Uh, my, My health improved and now it's on the decline again i think it might be a monthly thing and that might have something to do with the moon and that nearby grove of trees i don't know (laughs) it's funny i didn't think british columbia resembled south africa (laughs) (laughs) well we do have highlands and lowlands and uh lots of lots of uh groves of douglas firs um yeah it isn't uh doves it's ravens uh circling (laughs) <laughs> okay green raven so <laughs> all right here we go hi i'm jesse hi i'm jim and hi i'm paul weimer and we're going to talk about the grove of ashtaroth a uh, novelette by john bucken first published in 1910 and uh i i think i told mr jim moon that i was obsessed with this story um obsessed why <laughs> I don't know. It just every every year I kept coming back to it and sort of dashing myself against it. And there's something about it that I, I don't know. I really like it. And also it's kind of gross too. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like there's a lot of racism in it and it's sort of fundamentally based on racism. But it's not that icky of a kind of racism. It's kind of just like uh you know, it's not Nazi because he's he's friends with the guy, and he's just too embarrassed to call him out on his Jewishness <laughs> or something like that. Well, it's it's part of a lot of it's this this period of twentieth century literature is very troublesome. I mean, Lovecraft has, has got it in the neck um, in recent years, largely because of things he wrote in private letters, not what's in his mm. stories, and people apply what he wrote in his letters to his stories and start putting everything through a racist filter, but. Horror fiction is about the fear of the other mm-hmm. um, and you know, decay and generation are, are common tropes as well. Uh, and you can read them as racist. But when you start doing that, you can read pretty much all horror as racist if you're going to mm-hmm. make that parallel. I mean, here kind of I think you've got, you know, Buchan has the same. He's been exposed to the same intellectual climate that Lovecraft was, and whether we like it or not, an awful lot of people who were very, who would consider them liberal at the time, 
thoroughly bought into the scientific theory of different races and racial blood and all this kind of stuff. Now we all go, oh, no, bloody hell. That goes to a bad place. But, you know, yeah. we, we've had the, the rest of the 20th century to, um, to teach us that lesson and that they hadn't. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, I found this, uh, I mean, I, I narrated this. I'm always... I do have a, a sensitivity alarm bell because, you know, I, I don't want to read a story that will upset people for the wrong reasons. If it scares them, brilliant. But I don't, I don't want to offend them, you know? Uh, and this was kind of like, oh boy, where's he going with this? And it's kind of, it's just on the cusp of stepping over a line and saying something pleasant. But for me, it never quite crosses it. But I can no, understand I it, why people no. would pick up going, this, this is a bit, uh, there's, there's an off note in there for, for a modern reader, shall we say. It's not as bad as in, say, if you read Sax Roma, you go, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you know, doing all the horrible yellow peril stuff. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, what I like about, about uh, Sax Roma is that when you read his stuff, you, you realize that Fu Manchu is the hero. Yes. And that these racist <laughs> English assholes are always trying to, like, dominate Asia. <laughs> and all he's trying to do is, listen, gentlemen. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that, in that way, you can actually read it as a very positive story, as long as you remember that Fu Manchu is the hero. Mm. In this case, I think it's very uh, on the line. But Paul, is this the first time you had read it? I'd heard of this story, and when I was listening to that uh, that escape uh, audio drama. audio drama, it's like I think I've heard this before, or I know I've heard I had heard of. The audio drama before from of all things from a Harlan Ellison essay way back he was in one, in one of his like old uh, essay collections he was talking about the escape radio dramas and I think he mentioned this story so the Grove Astro sounded familiar when he first said oh why don't you read and listen to this like that sounds familiar but I don't remember where I where I picked it up and then there's the details with it. it's like this is vaguely familiar I don't remember where I first came contact with I know I came in contact before listening to this for the first time somewhere because the details were just familiar enough that I, I absorbed them from somewhere but I'm not quite sure where and to uh, key on what you two were saying before yeah this th this doesn't quite go into like say Lovecraft Red Hook territory for example but right. it I mean it's it's well how can What's how can I put this uh, gently? It's uncomfortably of its time, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, I I think of it like what's so interesting is that it's it is it's about race in a way that a, like a lot of Lovecraft stuff is about race as well, but it isn't racist in the sense that like. Um, uh, you know, we the only solution to this is to make sure that nobody uh, ever has any Jewish blood in them, and therefore we have to have a pogrom or anything like that. What it, where the line is in the story, where it gets sort of the most uncomfortable, is where he describes his friend's changing disposition, and there's a line in there about the uh, Saxon blood of the mother of the Midlands uh, couldn't hold up to the uh, strong wine of the East. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Something like that. And it's like, that is that is the, the logic that gives you, no matter how much 
black you have in you, you're black. You know, everybody. And the thing is, that logic is still in force, right? President Obama is black. Everybody knows that. His mom's white. He's black. How is that the case? Well, he identifies as black. <laughs> but, you know, uh, that's not like there's some fundamental truth behind that point is that if you buy into this logic, um, you can even buy into it yourself, right? So uh, a lot of Americans like to say, you know, I'm one one sixty fourth Cherokee <laughs> or whatever the line is, right? Because that makes them more American. And underneath this story is that fundamental assumption that race does influence your your life in some way. And, uh, of course, race isn't a real thing. It's not science, but it is a cultural thing. Mm. And uh, what I like about this story, other than, you know, it's amazingly well-written and very interesting and all that stuff, is that it is a little time capsule showing you exactly what people were like, or at least what their thinking was like in um, the early, uh, very early 20th century, late 19th century. Well, I think what's interesting about this story is the fact that um, this ambiguity brought into it, particularly over the end and the narrator's own experience of the force that inhabits the grove. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think kind of with the character's background, I think it's an interesting thought experiment. Say, if we flip this story and mm-hmm. had it him setting up a country house in the highlands of Scotland, discovering a druidic grove, and it right. was his border Scottish blood being called to, we probably wouldn't be going down the sort of discussion routes we'd have. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, but where, you know, where it gets done, so strange is, is that, you know, our narrator, he finds the, the force in the grove of Ashtoreth to be this lovely, peaceful force of nature. And yet in his friend, it's turned him into something of a monster and uh, a flab, well, a flaccid being and a brute right. is the exact words. And he's, uh, it's dehumanized him. Yes. Yes. Um, and he, he does reference that kind of, it was something of his particular blood going back to the Asians, Israelites blasphemy from when they turned away from the Lord that for him, it expresses itself in a, in a violent way rather than this sort of natural peace he finds. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet at the same time, he, he saves his friend and yet also knows he's done something absolutely terrible and, and actually got rid of a benevolent supernatural force in the world at the end. And that's one of the things that really is interesting because ho- you know, horror fiction and weird fiction, it tends to be quite white hat, white hat, black hat. You know, these, this is the side of good, this is the side of evil, never the two shall meet, one, one will triumph in the end. Uh, it'll be an upbeat ending, it'll be a downbeat ending. Whereas this is kind of much more kind of, actually, what have we done here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, That's a terrific ending. And, and considering the whole sort of theme of colonialism, which is also as strong, if not stronger, I think, of, um, in this story than the actual ideas of race and hereditary, I think that that puts a whole different spin on the story. And it kind of, I think it, it, if it had just been about re- the call of ancient racial blood, it would be a lot more uncomfortable. But in fact, there's these other elements which flip it the other way. And, and it is kind of, uh, you know, 
imperialism, colonialism at their mm-hmm. worst in being destructive and, uh, you know, destroying, I mean, as a, a lot did happen. I mean, you know, and indeed sadly still happens in places where, you know, relics of ancient cultures are destroyed by invading new cultures. You say, we're getting rid of that stuff. That has to go and it's lost forever. It's it's a very, I mean, I was very, very sort of fascinated by this story because all the other um, John Book and I've read has been a lot more two-fisted mm-hmm. adventure stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas this has a real sort of sense of poet, poetry and, uh, you know, a real sort pathos. of philosophy in it. Yes, and pathos. That's a good word. Yes, yes, definitely. I, I think it's it's beautifully written. I mean, the description of the landscape is is amazing. Um, it, everything is silver and the, the cut, you know, he, he, he compares it to things we were supposed to know. You know, it looks like Surrey, but imagine every, every dale has a, has a, a stream running through it. And the, the, the number of descriptions just of, the, of the skyline of South Africa, it's incredibly clear, uh, you know, that the love that Lawson has is reflected by, by Bakken himself, who, you know, he had been to South Africa. And um, there is a... <laughs> um, we, 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 I, I think it would be fair to our listeners to, uh, to, give, a, to give a little flavor of the text. So I, I, sure. I, 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 have, I have some here. Okay. At midday it cleared, and the afternoon was a pageant of pure color. The wind sang to, sank to a low breeze. The sun lit the infinite green spaces and kindled the wet forest to a jeweled coronal. Lawson gasmingly admired it all as he cantered bareheaded up a bracken-clad slope. God's country, he said 20 times. I've found it. Take a piece of Saxon downland, put a stream in every hollow and a patch of wood, and at the edge when the cliffs at home would fall to the sea, put a cloak of forest muffling the scarp and dropping thousands of feet to the blue plains. Take the diamond air of the Gamagrat and the riot of color which you get by a West Highland lockside in late September. Put flowers everywhere, the things we grow in hothouses, geraniums like sunshades and arms like trumpets. That will give you a notion of the countryside we were in. I began to see that, after all, it was out of the common. And mm-hmm. it goes on and on, talk about glens mm-hmm. and streams and winds. It's, it's, it's like, I want to go here and take my camera, yeah. damn it. It's beautiful, right? Um. So, um, among amongst the beauty uh, of descriptions in in the story, um, to me, the, it, there's kind of like a beautiful. I mean, maybe it's just beautiful writing, but also the description of Lawson is very sensual. <laughs> I want to read this because I think it's kind of interesting. Um, being a fair man, he was gloriously tanned. And there was a clear line at his shirt collar to mark the limits of his sunburn. I had no, you know, the reason he's doing this is because he's going to set him up as, you know, he's grown fat and pallid and all the problems that he has later on, maybe. Um, So, uh, continues. Um, I had first known him years ago when he was a broker's clerk working on a half commission. Then he had gone to South Africa and soon I heard he was a partner in a mining house which was doing wonders with some gold areas in the north. The next step was his return to London as a new millionaire, young, good-looking, wholesome and timid, uh, so wholesome in mind and body, and much sought after by the mothers of marriageable (laughs) girls. We played polo together and bunted a little in the season, but there were signs that he did not propose to become a conventional English gentleman. (laughs) 
<laughs> he refused to buy a, ba- a, buy a place in the country, though half the homes of England were at his disposal. He declared he was a very busy man <laughs> and had not time to be a squire. So there's, a, there's actually quite a bit of that um, description of just his physicality. Um, and, and I'm not just saying, you know, the, the stuff where it says, you know, he's got these Jewish eyes at certain points in the story or anything like that. Um, it's just like a, it's, these guys are really close friends. <laughs> and it's, I don't, uh, yeah. It's what we now call a bromance, isn't it? It is yes. very, I mean, mm. at the very least, uh, uh, you know, we were at school together, you know, we, we didn't like hanging out with girls. Um, it's kind of, yeah, homo, uh, erotic in a certain sense. Um, Later on, when he's got his house built, right, he still doesn't have a wife. He still doesn't have uh, any interest in children. Um, he walks around either naked or in flannels all the time. And then when our hero, the unnamed narrator, comes to uh, visit again, he also dresses in flannels and goes out uh, on the veldt, you know, uh, practically naked, uh, barefooted. Um, laying on the grass, watching his friend as he, you know, wanders over the you know beautiful landscape. There is sort of a a homo uh, erotic sort of thing to this, and I, I was it didn't really, you know, I was this just that maybe that's just the gorgeousness of the writing, right? But well, then there is something actually oh, I remember in T. S. Eliot though about wearing flannels. Uh-huh. I can't the way, it might be in the waistline. It's, it's definitely in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Uh-huh. Uh, I would walk around the, along the beach now where my flannels rolled. And I seem to remember, there's a reference to it in the waistline as well, or another Eliot poem. And I think it was kind of, gentlemen who, who strode around the place just wearing flannels were seen <laughs> as <clears throat> somewhat decadent and foppish. Yeah. Yeah. So that that might be a touch, or it might be just a case of that was kind of in a hot climate, sort of rigor casual clothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there could be that could be that touch to it there of kind of that he has got soft and decadent. Yeah, uh, there's there's <clears throat> definitely you know they they both wear it, and you know maybe it's the climate. I don't know, but what what I came across um, in rereading the story over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, I got obsessed sort of with, you know, this period of colonial history in South Africa. And um, for years and years, I had been trying to track down this, uh, I think it's an eight-part miniseries on a guy named Cecil Rhodes. You guys know about him? Yes. Yep, yes. yep, yep the, the Empire Builder. Right, the Empire Builder. That's the name for him. We still know about him because of his Rhodes Scholarship, right? There was a country in South Africa called... Rhodesia. Uh, mm-hmm. Rhodesia that just went away in the 70s right um kind of uh taking his his colonials colonialization colonialization efforts and uh expanding upon them um and we're yeah we people of africa are still uh burdened with a lot of the legacy of that this guy um like uh cecil rhodes in this in this story the lawson um, like Cecil Rhodes, made his money in mining in South Africa, uh, not just in gold uh, roads, but also diamonds, of course, De Beers. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what I found out during the 
course of my fi- actually eventually finding that documentary. It's on YouTube, actually. Um, uh, not documentary, the miniseries is, uh, and subsequent research is that Rhodes was probably really, really gay. Um, and Buchan knew him quite well. In fact, I believe he wrote an, uh, an, a biography of him, which is pretty interesting. Mm. They were both in South Africa. Um, Buchan was more governmental than um, mining concerns, but um, uh, Rhodes was making money hand over fist in and and did build a giant country estate, basically making his own colony, as this guy proposes to do in the story. I just found that that was too too interesting not to mention. Isn't that surprising? It's like this could be – I mean what, what another thing that clued me into it is in the audio drama. Mm-hmm. His name, the main character's name, the narrator's name is Buchan, right? John Buchan. They, because he doesn't have a name in the story, he's just uh, uh, the anonymous narrator. Um, it makes a little bit of sense to make that jump. And uh, there's no reason to think, you know, that he isn't named John Buchan other than it isn't mentioned. Right. It's just, uh, just it's an easy it's an easy insert. It very mm. easy because it says we were sitting around the campfire and the guy's name above that is John Buchan. I'm, I'm looking I'm looking at a list of uh, John Buchan's works. He didn't write a biography of Rhodes. He wrote a bunch of biographies. So Walter, so Walter Raleigh, he wrote a biography of Julius Caesar, Oliver Cromwell, Caesar Augustus. I don't know that it was an. I don't know that it was a, a book. A book. I think it may have been an article. Oh, okay. Um, he wrote a ton of stuff. Yeah, um, right? yeah. It's like wrote kind of stuff. Did stuff in World War One and was Governor General of Canada. Like, when did he sleep? Well, that's <laughs> the thing that I, I referred you, gentlemen, to the uh, the first world. War hidden history blog that has uh, copious copious um, descriptions of what John Buchan was doing and how he is sort of this, according to the the um, the posts, sort of at the center of uh, spying during World War One and propaganda and. I can see it. Um, he, you know, he becomes Lord Tweedsmere, right? He wasn't born Lord Tweedsmere. He wasn't born a, a lord. Mm. He's appointed a lord, right? Um, and you don't get that for nothing, usually. And he didn't get it because he was rich. He got it because he was of service. Yeah, the, he was the son of a on, minister. Yeah, mm. on the blog, it, it's, you know, he, he's in the secret elite, Right. And what what that means exactly? Not sure. But it makes sense that he would be rewarded with uh, uh, a title for services rendered. Um, but it's it also says and what's nice about this blog is that it does have tons of citations. So it isn't coming from nowhere. But um, it said that anybody who, who who was powerful or famous who came to London. Talk, Buck and talk to them. And it was like he was um, advisors to a series of monarchs and uh, prime ministers. Sort of behind the power, as it were. Yeah, it, it, it might be off topic to, to 
to speculate and my my brain's thinking about using John Buchan as he's the kind of guy that for like if you had a role playing game set in the 1910s 1920s he'd be the mm-hmm. guy bankrolling your characters go and do this for me I will reward you you can <laughs> right. go, go off in Africa and find out about this weird uh, weird cult and you need to yeah. know about it and it has that sort of um uh everybody's a everybody who goes to oxford right like cecil rhodes does um they they're just sort of oh he's one of us right the sort of the reason kim philby becomes uh such a problem is because he was one of us uh-huh. well, um, so you can what we call the old boy network here and you know right yeah it's it still exists i think culturally there's been a shift of that for kind of uh, generations younger than I, like my father's generation, they grew up with kind of a view that government was government, business was business, and there wasn't any shady day dealings going on. There were checks and balances. Now yeah. we take that as read that there are <laughs> backhanders, shady deals, forged between yeah. business and government, and you know there's there's a revolving door policy between the you know <laughs> houses of government and the the heads of uh, big industries and various mm. honorary seats on boards and governorships and all the rest uh you know yeah. now that that isn't conspiracy anymore now we accept actually that is that's how it goes right. goes on and that's right. historically you can say that has always gone on um yeah. i mean i know this this does at first glance you think whoa we went to tinfoil hat territory with this blog <laughs> but when you actually start looking at it and reading it and it's, and it is kind of well actually it's not it is there have always been these relationships i mean we said you know uh you know our today's author he got you know he was rewarded with governorship of canada mm-hmm. and something i think that's often not appreciated by people who haven't studied history is that um the idea of the hereditary aristocracy is a lot more transient than people care to realize because um, nobility was created by uh, appointment from the crown in England and in, in other places in Europe as well. It was done by royal say-so, and equally, it was taken away just as quickly if you fell out of favor or you screwed up, you, your family would be dispossessed, your lands and title would go to somebody else who had been a good boy. <laughs> yep, especially during um, civil wars. Absolutely. Um, uh, this, you've heard the phrase, oh, that gone to the wall. Mm-hmm. No, I haven't heard it's that a, one. It's a phrase, a phrase in England, for someone who's gone downhill, it, it says it's said it's gone to the wall. And that refers mm. to the fact that in old um, English uh, churches, the aristocracy would actually have a pew of their own. In very old churches, oh, right. they would actually right. be covered over so they couldn't see the riffraff and hoi polloi. Right, you um, worship but, in the same church, yep. but not so that you have to see the yep. people. Yep, you had the best seats in in the in the building, but if your family suffered an ill fortune, you'd lose that privilege. You'd lose your family pew, and you'd be with the riffraff and the hoi polloi, who in many cases didn't have pews, but there was around a lot of English churches a little um, stone step at the base of the wall, which people could use as a little seat. Mm. And that is the meaning of gone to the wall. <laughs> huh. Uh, <laughs> Literally, you know, the family, they had pride of praise, but they screwed up. They lost their titles and lands. And now they're with the plebs, you know, squatting down on literally just, you know, a little stone stool built into the walls itself. There, There's another phrase uh, like that in here. Um, 
I'm I'm pretty sure it might have been only in the audio drama, but I think it's in the the text itself. It's um Lawson had gone to seed. <laughs> One of those phrases, you know, that <sighs> means basically he's falling apart. Mm-hmm. He's um but uh, I thought it was um kind of a, might be a pun as well with all the trees planting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it is, I think, um, a contrast between the fertility um, and lush gardens he's created, mm-hmm. the fact that he, he personally, the flower of his youth, as it were, has faded and wilted here rather than fr- thrived. Right. Yeah, that uh, power's been turned to uh, Ashtaroth. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we should get back to the story. Uh, uh, I mean, we've been yeah, we, talking about Buck in a bit, yeah. but I, I do want to point out one more thing before I leave and uh, leave the Cecil Rhodes territory that we're in mm-hmm. in this story. I mean, this is this is exactly what Cecil Rhodes did: is drive north and you know claim new lands, and you know we got him. I believe he was the one who wanted to connect. Uh, the empire a lot. He was more colonialist than yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he wanted to build a railroad from South Africa to Egypt. Right. And make the entire continent British, right? Yep. Um, in any case, uh, in in that drive north, um, one of the things that happened in Rhodes's life mm-hmm. is that one of his very, very, very good friends, <laughs> if you know what I mean, um, got ill. Um in the country, and uh, he was nursemaided by Rhodes and uh, died. Um, and that uh, is followed by a visit from one of his uh, his uh, governmental friends. Uh, it, it's almost like, I mean, the, the, the theme of getting sick and um, uh, nursing someone is not unique to uh, Rhodes or anything like that, but it's a theme that comes up again and again in Buchan's writings. Um, I don't know uh, enough about Buchan to say more than that, but I just found sort of that background in be- behind the story very interesting. Now, back to the story proper. <laughs> back, back, back to the story proper. Uh, I, I want to focus on the uh, the conflicted nature of of the uh, of the narrator in tearing down this grove and how 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 it's not so simple as oh I'm destroying evil and mm-hmm. now my friend will get. so I, I I want I want to read a little bit from this again so please do then we worked to cut down the trees the slim stems were an easy task to a good woodman and one after another they toppled to the ground in meantime as I watched I became conscious of a strange emotion. It was as if someone was pleading with me, a gentle voice, not threatening, but pleading, something too fine for the sensual ear, if they're sensual again, but touching inner chords of the spirit, so tenuous it was and distant that I could think of no personality behind it. Rather, it was the viewless, bodiless grace of this delectable veil, some old, exquisite divinity of the groves. There was the heart of all sorrow in it, and the soul of all loveliness. It seemed a woman's voice, some lost lady who had brought nothing but goodness unrepaid to the world. And what the voice told me was I was destroying her last shelter. That was the pathos of it. The voice was homeless. As the axes flashed in the sunlight and the wood grew thin, that gentle spirit was pleading with me for mercy and a breath, brief respite, seemed to be telling of a world for centuries grown coarse and pitiless, of long, sad wanderings, of hardly one shelter. And the peace was the little of all she sought from men. 
There was nothing terrible in it, no thought of no wrongdoing. The spell to which Semitic blood held the mystery of evil was to me of the northern race, only delicate and rare and beautiful. And it goes it's, on and on about, yeah, it goes into a more uh, Israelite stuff and it's like, uh, it's like, I'm, it, it, it's touching. It's like mm-hmm. just destroying, destroying this last bit of uh, untrammeled loveliness from this, this poor spirit that has wandered all the way from the Middle East to here. And this is its last refuge and fucking the well, like the narrator destroys it to uh save his friend yeah I, I i didn't i didn't think of it like as a um uh it, i mean it, it is parallel to an extinction right of a of a of an animal mm-hmm. or it's just or maybe a plant it, but more importantly of 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 an animal right it's the destruction of a of a of a wandering spirit that's rooted itself here. It's not quite a genus loci because it's never always been here. It's, it came here running away from the destruction of man and now cornered. It's destroyed at last. Yeah, I was, I, I'm not sure that it, it did run away. I mean, certainly it was driven out from the other places, but like piteous long, I, sad wanderings. The- yeah, I mean that's the thing is this. I, I was thinking like, is the what's in the, like? I kind of want to read this story from from Lawson's point of view because I don't know what he's thinking. Like, I I know what he's doing and it's amazing and I'm like, what the hell is he doing? I'm I'm watching over uh, the narrator's shoulder. What is he doing there? Right, like wandering, beating a a path around the the tower. Um, you know, wearing that big uh, alabaster moon on his head, and oh, I think and I think it's, himself. Yeah, I think it's ob- I think it's obvious to me. He's he's uh, worshiping this uh, this minor divinity, giving something that this divinity hasn't had in a long time. Not, Blood sacrifice mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, yeah. And and, uh, and it, it's he's, closer to killing him. Yes, it's it's keep it is literally he's. He's sacrificing himself in the most literal way. That yeah. his his depleting life force is literally keeping this this lonely deity going in its last mm-hmm. refuge. Mm-hmm. Well, I find it interesting because I mean, um, so as someone who's played a lot of the Call of Cthulhu role playing game <laughs> and read read a lot of Cthulhu mythos literature and, and things of the same ilk, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a classic trope is that there is the cursed temple ruin or the abandoned mine where something has took up residence from elder times mm-hmm. or there's a, a tiki fetish or, or you know or some ancient <laughs> stone that is the link to some ancient horrible power and at the end you know the heroes they you know dynamite they mine they raise the temple they just burn the right. fetish they cast the stone into the sea or whatever and that you know the threat is buried forever and we have the same thing here, except it's kind of, um, was it something really bad what we have done here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what it's, I mean? There is that kind of, oh, 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 perhaps we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe yeah, there's another so, way. Yeah, it's not quite so two-fisted like, oh, we destroyed evil, it's dead. Mm. <laughs> but they're, they're, yeah. 
I mean, the very last line of this of this story. Maybe it's too early to bring in this podcast, but I'll read it anyway. And then my heartache returned, and I knew I had driven something lovely and adorable from its last refuge on Earth. Wham! Mm. Yeah, that, that's what that that's the thing is is I'm not sure that he's killed the goddess exactly as much as he's he's taken away the last you know doorway that the goddess can express on the earth like uh the model for this temple this tower is uh in the great zimbabwe right a destroyed Mm. city Mm -hmm. Uh, so that one you know they found uh, obviously i mean that's the other reason i kind of want to read it from lawson's point of view is what happened in those three years right well this is he does ask the narrator because the narrator makes an allusion to Ashtaroth, and he says, well, well where, where can I read up on that? Right. And it is kind of, I mean, if I was to sort of do some amateur armchair speculation, mm-hmm. it's kind of, you think kind of, it was still actually quite all the rage at the turn of the century, if you're having a, a country house to have a mock temple in the ground, what's uh-huh. yeah. you know, called a folly. Folly, and, yes. Yeah. And it's kind of, he thought, I've got, I've got the real deal here. You know, what was it about? You know, and that's how it's, he's become drawn into it. And mm-hmm. maybe, you know, what he started in kind of like a lot of, um, Victorian Edwardian chaps who formed Druid orders, and mm-hmm. be set up Morris dancing, um, groups or, <laughs> or sides as they're strictly called. And, you know, they reinstituted egg rolling and, uh, uh, cheese rolling and maypole dances and you know they sort of actually recreated often from the whole cloth what later people in the 20th century took to be surviving ancient folk traditions <laughs> that he's like well i've got the real temple what's the real deal and you know did it in that spirit of you know, his, you know like historical recreation and found he's dealing with something very real and fallen under its spell and i think at the point we sort of, you know, enter the story, you, you know, he does say it's kind of, you've come at a bad time and it's kind of, I'll be, I'll be fine again in a few days once the full moon's passed. But what, when the full moon is strong, he is completely enthralled to it. And he, right. he has to carry out these rites now that are just wearing him down. But if, a week later, he'd be more his old self. But he'd still be, he'd still be running to fat and not taking care of himself. Oh yeah, yeah. He'd still still be a degeneration, but yeah. um, he would have he'd be able to cover it up a lot better and keep it secret, and just say uh, I've got a touch of a touch of the you know dropsy or yellow fever or yeah. whatever was you know fashionable tropical complaint he could possibly have. You know, right? <laughs> of, um, it is it is very much like a. Uh, the, the revenge of the land as well, right? Um, one of the things that that keeps the Europeans from taking over all of Africa is the disease, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Egypt is, uh, you know, it's not one they fully conquered, but South Africa is the best that the Europeans could get hold of because it is so mild compared to the rest of Africa and at higher elevations, like this place is set, you look down on the tropics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it has all the all the beauty of uh, uh, English countryside um, when it was at its most beautiful, but also has access to the 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 hot the hot temperature and the 
good hunting and all that stuff. Um, I, I really uh, like I I love that there's that three years. The house is built. It it's palatial, right? It's got um, the the gorgeous setting. He's got servants. He's got he's built a road uh, from from Tiki, which uh, I assume is somewhere in South Africa, to this this uplands, this scarf as it's called, uh, and then in the drive to it. Uh, there's flowers on either side of the road growing naturally. It's gorgeous without as if it's been designed that way. And then when he gets there, everything is beautiful and the grove's still there. He goes into the house. He sees the library, which I want to talk more about that library. I love that library. Um, there's He sees the moon of alabaster, which I assume he's like – either gone on an archaeological mission to find or had purchased from someone who had done similar. And he's also found the birds. And the birds uh, are, aren't the only thing that are... They're, I, I believe... Uh, this must be out of the Bible or something like dubs, it, right? Doves, yes. Yeah, the, they're turtle doves, I think, right? Because they're green. Uh, is, are, are they green? Can't remember if they're. Uh, I think it, it's mentioned are. that they're green. Yeah, they are green in the story. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So they're uh, turtle doves, which are uh, very. Be- I mean, they're essentially beautiful pigeons, right? Yeah, green doves circling above mm-hmm. the treetops. Yep. There's. Uh, th- he's dug up the the moon of alabaster. He's dug up the um, the the birds, which are real, right? Though they are they were found at um, the Great Zimbabwe. Oh yes, if you, if you look on Google Images, there's nearly, well, very nearly a full page of uh, different of these strange orc-like bird carvings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from good all over in Zimbabwe. Up, you dig up the word orc, right? Mm. That's the thing. Is is also that's happening at this time is everything is going extinct, right? <laughs> They're <laughs> killing off everything, mm. and the sin that if you that happens at the end of the story is. It, it's kind of like, yeah, it's a shame that we have to destroy this country, but that's what we got to do. That's my job as a, you know, agent for the government. Uh, we got to, yeah, we got to burn down this forest, but how else are we going to get the settlers to move in, right? Mm-hmm. The sort of attitude to it, um, and the the two fisted action that takes place, right? In the in this story, the the they they get out shotguns, they go out a hunting, and what do they do? They beat the the for, the the groves trees so that the birds fly up. They sh- they make sh- short work of them shooting fifteen in the first volley, and then cut down all the trees and blow up the temple, burn burn the trees, uh, throw the birds on top of the uh, the pyre, and then salt the earth. This is some biblical shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is heavy dude. This is like uh I don't know, uh the Punic Wars. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, one point he says I'm gonna improve upon you, Josiah. It's like oh, let's go even further. Oh man. Yeah, it, and, it is very old testament sort of must And he's doing all this because his friend is sick, right? Um it, it if you think like if what's an outsider who comes in and says, what's been going on here, right? Well, see, my friend's sick and I think this forest has caused him 
some trouble. So I'm salting the earth and paying all these men to blow it up. <laughs> I've it just seems... dynamited a priceless ancient temple that was perfectly oh preserved. <laughs> it was. It was. It was uh, unlike the uh, the one at the Great Zimbabwe. It yeah. was complete. Mm. And on this, this uh, there's a line in the story about how there was not a. Uh, this was a land without history. Again, like one of those colonial sort of attitudes, right? Oh, the people who lived here, they didn't have a history. Mm. Right. They, they were dumb. They'd never do anything. So it's all right for us to come in, smack them <laughs> overhead with our hardback British blue passports and steal their country. <laughs> Purpose of visit, colonialism. That's all you need to know, Johnny Foreign now. Whack, we're having this. Get a railway up here now. <laughs> it's kind of sad, but it's true. <laughs> Well, see that that was that was the attitude. And, I mean, I mean, being, being flippant, but the the lack of any sort of great ancient ruins in Africa, or mm. ignoring them when they found them, was a justification for the kind of colonialism that went on that they, they wouldn't have done in Greece or ancient Egypt because oh, there's a lot of history here. We we can't just bulldoze this and put up a new condo. But in Africa, it was kind of well. These people have never done anything. It's for their own good, damn it. <laughs> I wanna, I wanna point out something else. That's uh, this is maybe harking back to earlier in conversation. But do you notice all the character names in here? They're all son. They all end in son. Oh so yes, yes. There's Lawson. He's mm. the main character. Uh, is he followed the law? He's the son of the law. I don't know. But another guy mentioned is Isaacson. Obviously, uh, he's the Jewish one, right? Mm -hmm. And Isaacson is the one who offered to buy his house in uh, London. Mm -hmm. um, and there's Jobson, who is the uh, he's the Scotsman, right? Yes, yeah. yes, the factor, as they call him. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. Uh, the, by the way, the, uh, factor is not just um, uh, an honorific. It's also what they call the people who own like big companies like uh, or run big companies like uh, the hudson's bay company or the east india company right yeah factor factotum mm. Mm. right and um i get the sense that when when uh, at the beginning of the story when lawson says uh or the narrator asks who owns this land he says my company or someone who's going to sell it to me right <laughs> um one of the things that indicates just how rich he is um, at the beginning of the story, we think they're just hunting, right? And then we find out uh, the, the uh, wagons, not wagon, but wagons are behind them, right? These guys are, well, one of them is incredibly rich, and he just got even richer. Um, he is like Rhodes. He, he has more money than the queen, right? Um, so when he talks about not going back to London and selling his his collection of Ming whatever's he's bought. Ming pots. Um, Ming pots, right. Um, and the great art that he's found there and all that stuff. And then he has it all brought down. He has a road built out to his estate. Um, there's not that many characters, it seems like, in the, um, in the, in the house. But one of the things that's mentioned uh, while um, the narrator's in the library is that at first, he thinks that the the sounds outside are by a watchman. Yes. Right? Because mm -hmm. a house yeah. of this size would certainly have a night watchman. 
that tells you like this is not like a tiny house, right? This is an estate. This is is mm. a massive estate with a security force outside of it. And when it comes time to blow up the tower, um, one of the things Jobson says is there's no um, the natives won't do well. Maybe that's only in the audio drama, but the natives won't be uh, caught anywhere near it. Um, won't go to the temple. Um, and so they, he hires local people. Well, those local people weren't there three years ago, right? This was empty land that hadn't been gone into probably for centuries, at least by white men. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so all of those local folks who, who get hired and, uh, have, he has to indemnify, right? Because the boss might not like that his garden temples being destroyed obviously work for Lawson so there's but the character names are Lawson Jobson um Isaacson right and there's also I think there's another son in there um the guy who designed the house um he said he would get somebody to design the house maybe it was Isaacson but um I just thought that that was really interesting it was like a constant remind or maybe it was Jacobson I'm just I don't looking know. now uh <laughs> I never noticed Adamson. Yeah, Adamson. Adamson. Adamson, of course, another Jewish sort of the adding the son in the name, right? Makes it sort of like uh, half half English, right? Half English and uh, Jewish. uh, Jobson or Jobson, right? If it's Jobson, then it's it's uh, biblical. It doesn't sound like a Scottish name, but maybe I don't. (laughs) Maybe I don't no, there's, know. There's a lot of Jobsons in Scotland, so is there okay? Yeah, this is a, um, <coughs> a Scottish punk band, uh, uh, the Skids, that were heard by a chap called Richard Jobson. Ah, mm. okay. Well, I, I I just think that it was interesting that of all the characters named in the story, they're they're all mm. sons. Well, right? there, there's it, a, there's one that isn't. Tra- who's that? Travers. Travers. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, who is Travers? Um, I think he's a uh, head servant, isn't he? Uh, oh, yes, yeah. he's the butler, yeah. right? Yeah, dinner's right. at eight, ring for Travers, he'll show you your room. Yeah, so yeah, I think he's about the only person without a, without a son right. name besides the uh, unnamed narrator. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, one of the, the names before Lawson becomes Lawson in his family tree is Lawson, right? Um, as in, mm. he was born low. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also, another thing that struck me in rereading for this week's uh, recording was that um, this is a very, even though um, uh, Lovecraft doesn't mention this story in supernatural horror and literature, he, he does mention the Green Wildebeest and... Uh, um, a couple other of his shorts. He doesn't mention this story. This story also reminds me of a couple of by Lovecraft um, about a guy who goes away to a, another land um, and either builds or rebuilds an ancestral home mm-hmm. um, and comes under bad influence thereabouts. So thinking one of the ones you're thinking of, the moon bog. The moon bog's one of them mm. for sure, mm. um, and the other one's the rats in the walls. 
course, yes. Mm. And what's so fun about it is they have the exact same structure, right? There's a narrator who goes away from either the the building site or the uh, never was there in the first place, and then comes and sees after being invited right to this country estate um, to find that his his friend has basically become sick and um in both cases i believe it it works out much worse than it does for the the narrator in this case right <laughs> <laughs> or wait, wait maybe maybe i can't remember the moon at the ending of the moon bog um the narrator watches as his friend is lifted up into the sky towards mm-hmm. the moon right mm-hmm. another uh ashtaroth is a um, moon goddess in a certain sense um and then it, uh, who's the narrator of the rats in the walls? Uh, it Captain be, Norris. Wait, doesn't Captain Norris get eaten? I'm pretty sure uh, Captain Norris. I think gets he does. Eaten. He has like the. Uh, I don't know how he's, he's he's as his friend is eating him. These are my last words. <laughs> he's on my chin bone now. <laughs> Something to that effect. Um, uh, Captain Norris um, comes and says. Why, chap, what are you doing here with this building? Oh, well, see, I'm excavating a, a temple beneath a, a magnum ma- oh, major. Yeah, yeah, it's a... The, it's the narrator is doing the excavating in the rats in the walls and has moved into Exxon Priory. And Norris right. is, is, the, is mm-hmm. the friend who keeps dropping by going, what on earth is going on here, man? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's, and they're kind of, like, identical in the setup, aren't they? And... The, well, there's a there's a lot kind of in fiction in this period about these um, uh, meddling and building on old ruins. Mm. Um, there's the story uh, I can't remember the lady's name, but she edited a whole uh, series um, of like uh, horror stories, creeps by night, and she wrote a very mm. fine tale called Out of the Earth about someone who has foolishly built a cottage on old burial old. old Sort of ancient standing stones and the very nasty Roman elementals come and turn up and uh, <laughs> show their displeasure, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, it, that is does tie into the whole kind of. I mean, horror always is holding up a mirror uh, and providing us with a metaphor for things people are concerned about but aren't necessarily talking about. Mm-hmm. And then in, in this period, I mean. You, it's a strong theme in a lot of mummy fiction and it's this idea of we've conquered the world. We're brilliant. We're civilizing the globe and we're a bit nervous whether we're actually doing the right thing. Are we trampling on Mm -hmm. cultures that are older, wiser and know a few things we don't and are we losing something and is something going to get its revenge? Mm -hmm. Um, The connection between all three stories, the moon bog, uh, this story and, um, the Rats in the Walls is uh, a theme that also has gone out of fashion today, which is atavism, right? Yes. Where mm. you revert to your ancestral type, mm. right? And that, I mean, that is really the driving force behind what what's going on in the Grove of Ashtaroth for Lawson is, is the narrator sees him, you know, he's going to build a clean house, right? All with local wood, none of that old furniture, mm-hmm. Um from the old old country, get rid of the Ming vases and all that stuff. And then his Jewishness takes over, right? And he 
starts thinking about all the diamonds and gold and uh, and stuff like that and that that's where the creepy uh uh yeah jews are about money and and uh jewels and, mm. that and sort greed of thing. yeah i'm gonna keep all my stuff yeah i'm gonna right. hoard it all and my my which, my precious which is kind of seeing things backwards right the reason uh jews are in the jewelry business is not because they they're well, there's some sort of love of just hanging out around gold the reason they're called silver uh silver blatt and uh, gold and uh, diamond right mm-hmm. yeah yeah is because those are the industries they're allowed to work in yes right? industries mm-hmm. that uh allow you to stay at home and do your own work rather than uh, uh get hired by somebody or own land um, so th- th- that inversion, that sort of screwed up understanding of wh- why people are like that the way they are is there. But I do – I really like the idea of this as a um, – yeah, we're destroying things in a cl- – it's kind of like an environmental horror story, mm-hmm. right? With with that utter destruction of species and um, – uh, the the trees that have silver bark, right, and the the birds that are always flying above in the sky, you know, above the tower, under the moon. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful beautiful image. Do, does anybody know why uh, Ashtaroth has changed genders over the years? Because she started as a Ishtar, right? Female. Uh, well. <clears throat> It's to do with the two spellings in the original Hebrew of the Bible. Mm. One is male and one is female. And whether this is a case of corrupt texts or references to different things with similar names is something that's much debated. But I did some checking on the biblical references. And, I mean, if you if you have an interesting weird fiction and the occult, you come across the name Ashtaroth fair regularly it's like belzebub mm-hmm. or baal yeah. mm-hmm. and I mean, it's, even, it's, it's, it's one of the big names the, people always drop you know what i mean yeah mm. yeah it's even in the D monster manual is one of the demons of hell ah. yes that's ah. right yes uh it's actually in a real dictionary of demons as well i'm not uh, surprised yeah uh, he's in a couple but when you actually start, start digging into it the actual law behind it is is very very scanty in the Bible. Um, the actual verses he references, there's only sort of two references to Ashtaroth, both in uh, one in First Kings, one in Second Kings, and it is about the, how the temples were raised. But it doesn't really say much about that that deity or its worship, other than it's listed in uh, in one. It's actually a King Josiah. He's, it's, you know, it's part of several deities whose holy places he, he erases along with Moloch and um, uh, say a few others. And so there's kind of this very, very scant detail. And there is this um, confusion of whether it is actually a male or a female deity. I mean, I think it was largely in Buchan's time thought to be um, a, a female deity, and it was Ishtar, and it was all tying in, going back to um, like Fraser's work with the Golden Bough, which basically mm-hmm. said, oh, all these myths, they're all exactly the same. It's either mother goddesses or it's reborn male sun gods, uh, which now is something that is rather more critically questioned, going, well, actually, it's not quite that clear cut. And we worked up a lot of dodgy translations. We found a lot of people just assume stuff because it fit a pattern. 
And you find, like, in the 70s, uh, well, no, actually earlier than that, Dennis Wheatley, one of his black magic novels, um, To the Devil, a Daughter, features oh, a... Oh, that was cult, a movie. Cult. Yes, yes, with Christopher Lee, 1976. Yes. Yep. And in that, Ashtaroth is a male deity. And he is like an antichrist, sort of literally an antichrist kind of um, um, on, crucified on upside down cross who uh, gets um, uh, what's her name? Natasha Kinstein knocked up to become an avatar of Satan. Nice. Um, I, w- I want to point out that uh, if, you, if you do Google uh, Ashtoreth, Ashtaroth, you're probably going to get the wrong entry at first, right? It starts with um, the the demon. Mm. But if you click through to Astarte, um, on the Wikipedia entry for Astarte, um, there's a statuette from Phoenicia, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Which is, I don't know, somewhere in the Mediterranean, right? Phoenicia is north and west of what is now Israel. Basically, it's where Lebanon is now. Right. The Canaanite area, right? Well, well, the Canaanites were throughout what, throughout right. Israel and uh, Lebanon. In any case, yeah. In any case, the statuette um, here is obviously very female, um, wide hips and boobs and stuff, right? But I love that on her head is it says a horned headdress, <laughs> but that's not what it is. If you have read this story, right? It's a crescent moon, mm. which is not made clear in the story at all. Oh, I see. <clears> like it. I was, oh, you're so, from the, the the picture from the Louvre. Oh, you are so right. Right. So, mm. I'm I'm wondering, like, when I was I was thinking about what's what visually you see in the library. Um, I love that library, by the way. I I love the idea of being out in the wilderness and having all these ancient texts. It's it's a very Lovecraftian library. With a nice fireplace and a, uh, and he stays up all night reading some French novel, right? Which I, I believe had a pun, sort of punny title, like a it was like a, the Enigma or something, <laughs> you know, pointing out the uh, the story itself. But um, he uh, displayed in the library are the moon made of alabaster, mm. which is probably what this statuette is made out of. Um, and the soapstone birds. And in picturing the moon, I thought it, it would be a full moon, like the moon is depicted uh, in, when Lawson is, you know, at his, having his menses mm. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> because he's literally bleeding, right? It, it, there's some sort of uh, tie into the, the moon cycle thing going on as well. Um but I was thinking maybe it's a half moon. But here this makes much more sense with it being a crescent moon, right? Um, and that idea of wearing a crescent moon. Like I don't know where Buchan did it, where he got this image of the guy wandering, you know, walking around the, the tower, mm-hmm. cutting himself, wearing a, a moon on it as a headdress. But it's could be from something like this because it isn't evil. It's just not um, not Christian, right, and not Jewish. Um, and there's something there's something really interesting about uh, if this is a true if this these were true events, then that makes the Bible a true story, right? Which means regular capital G God is real, 
and Astarte is uh, dying but real, or uh, Ashtaroth is dying but real. Um, and what is that relationship with non-Jews to the Christian God? This has not gone in onto into the story. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like um, the thing is, is the covenant that's in the Jewish Bible, the for, uh, Old Testament, right, is with the Jews, not mm-hmm. with Christians, and the fact that only Jews are influenced by only the Semites, as it's put in the story, are uh, subject to the. The call of Ashtaroth, as it were. <laughs> Not the call of Cthulhu, the call of <laughs> Ashtaroth. Um, and the only time the beauty of Ashtaroth's power comes into effect is when when it's under threat by someone who isn't. Like, uh, the narrator never hears the call until he's determined to cut it down. Right. Uh, when they did hear it when he first sees Lawson, yeah, he has a he has a taste of it then, and he's but he doesn't hear it like an actual voice until no uh, no, but he does. He suddenly because he speaks speaks of suddenly seeing uh, the blood ritual being carried out as not being horrific, but uh, uh, you know as something nurturing, and mm-hmm. he stops seeing it as he loses that real kind of body horror. He, he kind mm-hmm. of has, and at the moment it's interesting because that, in that scene he's kind of he's psychically at some sort of an impasse of where he is actually just say he's drawn to go further into the temple, and at the same time there's something mm-hmm. else keeping him out, and it is kind of whether it's is it are there two forces at work there or is it one or is it one of kind of right we well, you know we we'll beguile you enough so <laughs> you won't come in and interfere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just stay there for now until we're done. You know, you can just have it. You know, you can just have a taste of the main shows, but you know, mm-hmm. no further. And I think that's that's another interesting thing. Is there is there more than one one force at work in in that particular scene? Um, mm-hmm. I uh, when I first wrote about this story, I, I, I said it was four years ago. It was not. It was five years ago now. <laughs> um, I must have read it prior to that as well. Um, I made uh, some comparisons to a story by Philip K. Dick. I don't know if you guys have read it, but it's a really good story called Of Withered Apples. This is a story about a a woman who, married to a man, asks her husband for permission to go outside like she's a little kid. Mm -hmm. And she goes off and wanders uh, off into the hills behind their home. And um, the reason she's doing this is because she's being called to uh, by a tree. Ah. The tree is an apple tree that's on a uh, uh, rocky land that's had some sort of disaster happen to it. It's a, a farm that went bad or something. She's called to the tree, um, and they almost have like a sexual relationship uh, with the tree sort of calling, saying, come on, baby. And she's like, no. I don't want to. And then um, she, you know, it tries to grab her, uh, basically, and then uh, she runs off, afraid of it. But um, as she's running down the hill, um, it throws. <laughs> it doesn't actually show it throwing, but we know that it did. 
one of its apples at her. Um, and it rolls down the hill beside her. And it's like all the other apples on that tree. They're sort of scabby and withered. Hence the t- title of the story. Mm-hmm. She, But she picks it up and eats it. Bad After move. she... Uh, sorry. Bad move. A bad move, right? <laughs> like, why is she eating this 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 withered apple, right? Um, she eats it, um, goes home, um, gets sick, and dies. Um, her husband buries her, um, and a year later, or the spring after, goes to visit her um, her uh, grave, and there's an apple tree very fast growing up out of her. Her grave. Um, it's kind of like uh, that call, the call of nature, right? It's it it wants you. It's it it needs you, um, and it it's using you in the same way that Ashtaroth is using Alasan to get the worship. It it's in this. That's what that's what you know, Paul. You were putting it like. Um, she was driven out of all of these other temples. Yeah. And I got the sense that it's like um, these sacred groves are all over the world is what I got the sense of. Mm-hmm. And that the they've been cut down or destroyed in all the other places. And this wild one away from uh, people was preserved somehow because of the lack of people around. Um, the Christians hadn't come in. The Jews hadn't come in. Uh, and whatever, however it was built, uh, no, no way of knowing, right? Um, it was like the last portal through which the goddess could, uh, communicate fully. Uh, That's almost like suggesting the goddess is not of this earth, but is it like something adjacent she's to She's the it? moon, right? Yeah. That's, it's the, she's, she's the moon. That, that's why it ties in so well to the moon bog, right? Where he's literally... Pulled up off of the earth and in, by a moonbeam. Okay. I, I don't, I don't know what it means, <laughs> but I, I really dig it. Um, 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 the the other story I'm thinking of, or oh, the other author I'm thinking of, as we're talking about this, is um, Haggard, mm, and she. Yeah, it's very Haggard like, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Like yes. ancient mm. ancient powers in the dark of Africa that were have been untouched by British. But by man for a long time, but it's like still lurking, lurking there. And a an uh, unwitting British guy goes into the heart of Africa, and things happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a completely, it's like a very different kind of story. There you have a, there you have a lot more overt racism with, and uh, it's more two fisted. Uh, more two fisted. This. Yeah, this is much more uh, elegaic. Yeah, and wistful. Right? It's all. It, I I also think it's just beautiful. Like it's incredibly well written, beautiful to read, um, on the page. It's beautiful to read. It's beautiful to, to listen to. To as listen well. to. Thank you, Mister Dim Moon. Indeed. Uh, this, well, this was a real pleasure to read because um, it is just so exquisitely crafted. I, um, I I I. That's why I can go back to it again and again. Even the, and it doesn't tell you what it means. Right. That's what I love about it. It's one of those just uh, layers and layers, which is kind of very unusual for a, a short story of this period. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it reminds me in many ways of kind of the kind of stories kind of um, 
some more recent writers in the last few years have written when they've sort of gone back and they've, they've done a pastiche of classic sort of pulp literature or adventure literature or, you know, old school weird fiction. Mm. And they tell that kind of story in the same language, but they bring in these layers of questioning and ambiguity, which the originals often don't have. And, you know, it just this really sort of reads like like one of those kind of um, sort of not a pastiche, but these kind of homages that are also reinterpretations. The kind of thing that Neil Gaiman, Warren Ellis, mm. Alan Moore do really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and M- Michael Moorcock as well was doing it e- sort of even earlier. <laughs> um, and it's kind of, it is really kind of, I think you could really fool someone to thinking this was written in the last few couple of decades rather mm-hmm. than 1910 because it has these themes and that ambiguity of where you can see it's addressing certain things, but unlike a lot of literature of the period, it's not clear cut of, yep, that that's for us. That's for them. This is good. This is bad. And there aren't those sort of very clear lines. And so ambiguity, I think is a definitely a, something that comes to the fore throughout the 20th century is the, you know, the end of the 20th century, things get very ambiguous and not entirely sure. <laughs> Whereas, you know, literature at the turn of the century tend to be a lot more polemic mm-hmm. i think it would it would make an amazingly good comic book adaptation if it was you know full length graphic novel length you know um it surprises me that there hasn't been more adaptations of it there's just the the novelette uh turned into the audio drama for escape uh, they did it uh, i think two different versions but just the one adaptation doesn't seem justifiable considering how how visually stunning it is i think it would make a great comic book well i think um, i think bookens a lot like arthur conan doyle i mean he's got the albatross of richard hanratty and the 39 steps round yeah. his neck and people right. think of him as an adventure writer the same as think of as doyle as being writing just wrote sherlock holmes and when you actually mm-hmm. dig in you find they dabbled in weird fiction and historical fiction and wrote all these other things uh, they're often a lot more interesting than um, their major canon, as it were, they're best known for. Uh, no, not to run down either the Hanratty books or the Sherlock Holmes books. Obviously, they're classics, but you know, you discover they're they have a reputation and they're known for certain books, and you realise they're an even better writer than you thought when you discover all these different literary highways and byways. They were also, um, you know, exploring at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, I think. I you, I think you. I think you're right, exactly right. People jump to the audience. Oh yeah, he wrote he wrote the Thirty Nine Steps. He's that guy, and not and he completely ignore anything else he ever touched. Well, this uh, I, I, this I'm story first appeared this. in a book called The Moon Endureth, which was short stories and poems. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of not <laughs> what you expect from the, the author of the Thirty Nine Steps. No, but he wrote. He just wrote a ton, uh, mm. as many people did. Um, and those adventure books are the ones that, you know, sold, right, that were turned into Hitchcock movies and TV movies and all that stuff. But there's, uh, I think the last time that I, or maybe the first time I heard of it, uh, this story, um, I, I was reading, I think I was listening to an audiobook of Christopher Hitchens' essays. Mm-hmm. And 
he was talking just, I think, just about great literature and going through it. And um, I start the the post I did in 2012 with a quote from uh, where it originally came from in the Atlantic Monthly, uh, 2004. I want to read this because I think it it summarizes the story and the the haunting quality that allows you to reread it over and over again. So. He, he described it this way. In a remarkable short story, The Grove of Ashtaroth, the hero finds himself obliged to destroy the gorgeous little temple of a sensual cult because he believes that by doing so, he will salvage the health and sanity of a friend. But he simultaneously believes himself to be committing an unpardonable act of desecration. And the eerie voice that besieges him to stay his hand is unmistakably feminine. To me, that quote is pretty accurate, but it sort of highlights the male-female dynamic. There's no women in this story, right? The only woman is the, is the goddess. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. What? I've been trying to wrap my head about around the unnameable. Is it wholly a comedic piece? Because I think it is. Uh, the Lovecraft unnameable. Yeah. Well, it, 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 I think it, from really, it was it was a pop. <laughs> Avails and a dig at someone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it, so it's, it uh, spent so much time doing that, and then I, I'm like, I think these are all jokes. Well, the thing was, he, his first published story was Dagon, and it went out in a fanzine, and he got a certain amount of criticism for it, and for his language, and he wrote an essay, uh, The Defense of Dagon. And um, he, then later he collaborated with. Uh, See Eddie Burton on a story of the Love Dead, oh, which got rejected right. for being too gruesome, and both I think both those things sort of bubbled up in the unnameable. Because again, that mm. is a reference to his friend that had a weird story rejected as being too much for the milk sops. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I, I think this is, a, this is a huge. It's kind of. I don't know, it reminds me of sort of some of like Poe's or Hawthorne stories that are kind of um, they're like kind of like black jokes, really. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, there's certainly in American weird fiction. When I was digging into old Halloween stuff, there's an awful lot of these sort of ghost stories that turn into jokes. Yeah, and the Enable seems to be very much playing on that tradition. And like the the narrator is very. Um very very tongue in cheek when he's he's describing his friend the principal mm. um, i was i was i was like uh, okay i'm going to i'm going to get into this weird story <laughs> Let me start wait a second what's all this about the congregationalists and sir arthur conan doyle <laughs> it's like the the guy is just a pop a uh, sort of a well maybe that's a story for another day uh, <laughs> okay so, uh, the Grove of Ashtaroth, I'm pretty much ready, I think. Um, there's a, this, I will send this one more link, too. Um, this is just a story, sum, uh, story summaries for uh, his other stuff as well that's horror, 
or supernaturally. Ah, um, excellent. Paul. Somewhere is a Paul. There he is. Somewhere. I'm somewhere. Yeah. There you are. Um, so you just scroll down a bit uh, on this post, and um, it gives uh, story summaries for uh, most of his stuff. Mm. And uh, uh, the Green Wildebeest also has a sacred grove. Um, what else? Oh, record. Oh, <laughs> never mind. Yeah. Let's get started. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me, my my health improved and now it's on the decline again. Oh, I think it might be a monthly thing, and that might have something to do with the moon and that nearby grove of trees. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny, I didn't think British Columbia resembled South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have highlands and lowlands and uh, lots of lots of uh, groves of Douglas firs. Um, yeah, it isn't uh, doves; it's ravens uh, circling. <laughs> okay, green ravens, though. <laughs> All right, here we go.